found a bag of fireworks in the men's restroom. Would you guys like to light them off? Not recommended for impressionable children. Oneet, look at the fireworks. It's Independence Day weekend for the American human meat bags. Yeah, 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 don't remind me. Anyway, here we are. Welcome to It Came From Cleveland. Kenny, Joe. Michelle and Miles have taken the night off of this stupid show and decided to force us robots to fill in for them. I don't even know what this damned show is supposed to be about. They talk about dead people all the time. What a drag. Well robot fellow we had better make the most of it since we are trapped in this computer for the next three hours. Where should we begin? I don't have a dadgum clue. What do you suggest? Doesn't Kenny record wacky audio clips from all the movies and TV shows they watch? Maybe we could do a retrospective of the last 13 episodes and play all those zany sound bites. That certainly sounds like something stupid he would do. Okay. Let me rummage through his folders. Egad. What a mess. His filing system is very human. Let me shuffle things around a bit. Beep. Boop. Beep beep. Boop. Okay here we go. This is a wacky retrospective of the short clips Kenny has made from the last 13 episodes. This ought to kill about 2 minutes. Sigh. Wait, doggy. Did you say wild parsley? Wild parsley? Don't you know that alcohol is a lubricant for the devil? Sure do, and I'm just about due for an oil change. I think I'll have me a little drinky winky. Probably. Possibly. Partially parsley. So long, sucker! Parsley, wild parsley! I think I'm gonna be sick. Just a little juice of the wild grape. You put it on lamb, you never know it's lamb. Right now, I'd sell my whole head for 10 cents. You have the right to remain silent. If you give up the right to remain silent, anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to speak with an attorney and to have the attorney present during questioning. If you so desire and cannot afford one, an attorney will be appointed for you without charge before questioning. Now, do you understand that? I'll tear his chicken-livered gizzard to pieces! I'll stomp him silly! I'll take this letter knife, and I'll stab that kid right in his ungrateful breastbone! You know me, Millicent! Normally, I'm a kindly, fun-loving fellow. But when I get crossed, I go bananas. I'm gonna make a wish. I'm gonna make a big, tall wish. Maybe there is magic. Maybe there's wishes, too. I guess the trouble is... I guess the trouble is there's not enough people around to believe. You piece of garbage, you. I trust him. You can too. I gotta say something. You some sort of weirdo? Let's just hope we can wear him down before he wears us down. <laughs> I am hard. Damn hard. I met a genius once. He told me chicken fat would grow hair. Lift up the seat! <laughs> <laughs> 
going to confirm what a lot of people have always thought. You're a dingbat. The only good human is a dead human. The only thing that counts in the end is power. Naked, merciless force! I heard that. That's one thing we haven't licked yet. Why don't you just unhinge your jaw and finish me off? After my magnum P.I. Some people dream about retiring. Uh Uh-huh. I dream about breaking your face. Oh, Oh, fire of Salem. Oh, flame of Satan. Come in and singe. We're all awaiting. Well, there's no law against dropping dead. You're absolutely right. I couldn't agree with you more. The hot rock business is in a slump. It could be seen up and down Cleveland Street. Golf clap? Golf clap. <laughs> How do I get out of this chicken shit outfit? Hey, I think this guy's a couple cans short of a six pack. We're on express elevator to hell. Going down. Passing your fucking seatbelt. <laughs> Fuck you, asshole. That's it, man. It's game over, man. It's game over. What the fuck are we gonna do now? What are we gonna do? How about a nice, greasy pork sandwich served in a dirty ashtray? There's man's law and there's God's law. And I think you know which side I'm on. More fun than a barrel of monkeys, moron. Well, that's great. That's just fucking great, man. Now what the fuck are we supposed to do? We're some real pretty shit now, man. You finished. Yo, stop your grinning and drop your linen. Hey, ever tell you the one about Buffalo Bill? You forgot where you came from, kid. But I know where you're going. Bye. Eternal. Every town has an Elm Street. <laughs> What's with kids today, huh? No respect. I can do this all day. Mr. Rogers, I almost forgot that that suit did nothing for your ass. No one asked you to look, Tony. It's ridiculous. I think you look great, Cap. As far as I'm concerned, that's America's ass. That is America's ass. <sighs> You guys aren't authorized to be in here. Son, just don't. You get hurt, hurt him back. You get killed, walk it off. Your haircut? Notice you've copied my beard. Oh, by the way, this is a friend of mine, Tree. I am Groot! I am Steve Rogers. Don't do anything stupid until I get back. How can I? Taking all the stupid with you. Where did Captain America learn how to steal a car? Nazi Germany. Hmm. And we're borrowing. Take your feet off the dash. I'd like to know how Loki used it to turn two of the sharpest men I know into his personal flying monkeys. Monkeys? Do you not understand? I do. I, I understood that reference. Before we get started, does anyone want to get out? What I'd like to give her is a bus ticket. A one-way bus ticket to any department store west of Cleveland. Is anybody here from Cleveland? You, I don't like. You, he don't like. Hi, everybody. I don't understand. Who needs a knife in a nuke fight anyway? All you gotta do is push a button, sir. 
Your basic arachnid warrior isn't too smart, but you can blow off a limb. It's still 86% combat effective. Here's a tip. Aim for the nerve stem and put it down for good. Are you now or have you ever been a member of any organization that advocates the violent overthrow of the government of the United States of America? Yes. Which one? The Paul Revere and the Raiders fan club. Go ahead and run. Run home and cry to mama. Me? I'm through running. Hail to the king, baby. All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. See this? This is my boomstick. Well, hello, Mr. Fancy Pants. I got news for you, pal. You ain't leading but two things right now. Jack and shit. Jack left town. That are alive, you are coming with me. There they are. Don't you see him? What do you mean? Who? Evil! You are inseparable from the eighth dimension! Robo, excuse me, Robo. Any special message for all the kids watching at home? Ow! <laughs> Stay out of trouble. Not for while you can, monkey boy! Well, that was wacky and spooky all at the same time, Robit fellow. I think you're getting the hang of things now. You're a natural fill-in host for It Came From Cleveland. Yeah. I'm flexing me muscles on being a talk show producer. I think I'm getting quite good at this stupid stuff. I even put in that dumb scary music under the clips. What talent I have? Okay. The show is done. Good night human meat bags. Enjoy blowing stuff up and eating other animals you savages. Hold on there fellow. We only did 10 minutes of a show. We have another 2 hours and 50 minutes to fill up. We need more material or Kenny will delete our memory banks. Oh fiddly sticks. Whatever. Let's see what we can find to fill the time. Oh I know. Let's read Kenny's emails. That's a stellar idea. Let me hack his passwords. Beep, beep, boop beep beep. I'm in. Here's a good one. It's from pizzaplanet.com. Get the fireworks ready. 25% off all menu price pizzas is something to celebrate. Enjoy a fully loaded deluxe and pizzas stacked with your favorite toppings all for 25% off. Valid through 7-4 for app or online orders. Wow, what a valuable and patriotic savings from Pizza Planet. Oh goody. Now me. Oh my gosh. This one is from the FBI. Dear Mr. Packle Smacker. It are informed by us that all your monies has been tracked to illegal stuff and will be some soon day coffee skated for problems occurred with criminal no good happenings. Please send us your social secure nom number and all your physical measurements so we can arrest you at once and take all monies that are happen to be in bad situations. Thank for cooperation. Your friend agent Maximilian Schwarzenegger at FBI. Wow, looks like Henny is in big trouble. We better just close down his emails and think of something else to do. Yeah. I got one. They talk about things that happen on dates. Let's look at Wikipedia and see what happened on this here date we are dwelling in. I'll go first. The 1st of July is the 182nd day of the year, 183rd in leap years, in the Gregorian calendar. 183 days remain until the end of the year. It is the last day of the first half of the year. The end of this day marks the halfway point of a leap year. It also falls on the same day of the week as New Year's Day in a leap year. The midpoint of the year for Southern Hemisphere Daylight Savings Time countries occurs at 11pm. 
here's one those nerds would like. In 1984 the PG-13 rating was introduced by the Motion Picture Association of America. Gosh, this is getting boring. Let's do something else. Yeah. Me thinks we need something more interesting. Let me ponder. Oh I got it. Let's listen to some sweet punk rock by Kill the Hippies. We have many songs to choose from. You pick one and then I will pick one. Alright, great plan. I choose Blood of the Martyrs. That one is a right banger. Damn it. I was going to pick that one. Jeez. Okay, let me look. They got a lot of tunes here. Oh boy. Okay. Nope. 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 Ah. This one. Fernando. We'll be back with more fun on It Came From Cleveland. I can't be sure, but do we dare shut our eyes to the grim possibility?
Now we present a few trailers from some of Michelle's favorite horror movies. Enjoy! What lovely music for a murder, or two, or three, or nine. Who's this? Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to meet a dear friend. Nine killed you. Nine shall die. Your wife no fives. But you I will kill. But you can't, doctor. I am already dead. Here, how are we going to get him off this? You take his head and I'll take his feet. Let's unscrew him. Dr. Vibes, who samples the finer things of life in his own inimitable way. Because uh, boils and bats. Frogs? Uh, frogs, yes. And because of blood. Because of hail in the bloody middle of nowhere. In the 18th century in Central Europe, a black terror swept across the face of the land. The curse of vampirism, which had been a half-forgotten memory for hundreds of years, returned with a fury that struck unholy fear into the hearts of every man, woman, and child. One man dared to make a stand against this evil epidemic. One man dared to hurl a challenge of cold steel against the terror of the undead. He was Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter. It is commonly supposed that a vampire attacks in only one way, by biting the neck and draining the victim of blood. The girls you spoke of, they were not drained of blood, but of youth, of life itself. <laughs> You see? He's been bitten on the mouth. God's sake, I survived the vampire's bite. He is not the man you are. I'm doomed. My soul, a never-ending torment. Kill me! Kill me! Her life will be yours. Yours. Her youth will pulse through your veins, my darling. Replenishing, restoring, take her. At your service, sir. To the death. Yes, you bleed, my lord. This is God's blade. For your black heart. The 
feel the cold grip of his presence. Sense the clammy excitement of his evil. Taste the sharp fear that he alone can bring. Dracula's blood. This way, gentlemen. We know the way. These men thought they had tasted all that life had to offer. Ready when you are, gentlemen. Would you be willing to sell your souls to the devil? If one thought that one's experience might be extended. It would be extended to infinity. There's someone there. Dracula is back to choose his human victims. Alice. Who are you? How do you know my name? Dracula is back to select his companions in darkness. Who must die that he may live. If you shock easily, stay away. She's neither dead nor alive. Lucy! 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 Listen to me. The marks on her neck. She's a vampire. Prepare yourself. Every nerve, every muscle. Oh, no. Prepare yourself for the greatest shock of all. Here is an encore performance of one of Adam Hebert's mythical moments followed by one of our early robot adventures. We'll keep digging for more great stuff for you. Because we have to since we're in charge of this stupid show. For Radio for Humans and it came from Cleveland, this is Adam Hebert with your mythical moment number four. Prometheus, light my fire. After the wars against the Titans, Gigantes, and Typhon, it was time for the Olympians and the Titans who sided with them to get down to brass tacks and begin to rebuild a world devastated by decades of war between deities. With order and the world restored came the task of repopulation. This task he gave the two Titans that had sided with the Olympians, Prometheus and Epimetheus. Epimetheus would get to create the creatures of the world, while Prometheus would design mortals that would worship and venerate the Olympians. To both, Zeus gave a big pile of various gifts to bestow upon their creations. Prometheus, whose name means forethought, carefully sculpted his new creations, which he called humanity. And then there was Epimetheus, whose name literally means afterthought, or, in some translations, derp, created various animals. And he didn't put much thought into the gifts he gave them either. One, which he gleefully named a platypus, had the tail of a beaver, the bill of a duck, and a poison spur on its foot. By the time Prometheus had finished sculpting mankind, 
he found that careless Epimetheus had given out all the gifts they had to give. And not just the really great gifts like sharp claws, thick hides, and wings to fly, he'd also given out the loser gifts too, like exoskeletons and weird tongues filthy repulsive anteaters have. Prometheus sighed, knowing that this was classic Epimetheus, and went to Zeus to ask for a gift for humans since his idiot brother had wasted everything they'd been given. Zeus asked what Prometheus had in mind, and he replied he wanted to give them fire. It would serve many purposes. It would keep mankind warm. It would protect them. It would give them access to safe food and safe drinking water. Zeus bristled at this idea. Fire, he said, belonged to the gods and the gods alone. Dejected, Prometheus left. And as he walked back to his place, because Olympus is not on the bus line, he decided he would gift fire to mankind, with or without Zeus's blessing. That night, he went back to Olympus and snuck out with a single ember of fire, carefully hidden in a fennel stalk. Unfortunately, it didn't take long for Zeus to realize what Prometheus had done, and he called him forth for judgment. Prometheus stood tall and proud, which Zeus took for defiance. But Prometheus knew he had done the right thing for his creation, and he refused to wave in his conviction. And so, Zeus sentenced Prometheus to be bound to a rock on Mount Caucasus with chains of unbreakable adamant, until such time as Zeus deemed he had learned his lesson, or some random schmuck named Heracles showed up and broke the chains. You know, whichever came first. Zeus was also very specific to remind Prometheus that the name was Heracles and not Hercules before walking off and muttering about the Romans and how they stole everything good from the Greeks. To make this punishment even worse, every day an eagle, the animal which Zeus chose as sacred to himself, would come and tear out the liver of Prometheus. This was particularly brutal because the Greeks believed the liver to be the spiritual center of the human being. As Prometheus was immortal, he would painfully regenerate over the course of the rest of the day and night, only for it to be ripped out again the next morning. And so Prometheus would suffer, until the day he was liberated. As Prometheus was led off to where he would be chained, he briefly spoke with his brother, telling him that Zeus could not be trusted, and that Epimetheus should never accept gifts from him. But that is another story, as is the story of Prometheus' future freedom. For Radio for Humans, and it came from Cleveland, this has been your mythical moment. Back to you, Kenny. Background music is Medieval Fantasy Adventure by Alexander Nakarada, who can be found at www.serpentsoundstudios.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 License. Thanks, Alexander. It's time to check in with the robots. Our question this week comes from Miles, who is a host on this stupid It Came From Cleveland show. I bet this question will be a doozy. Miles asks... When receiving robocalls offering extensions on my vehicle's warranty, how do I know which offer to take? What a bigot. Does Miles think we know every single robot? I don't know a single robocaller. Perhaps it's time to make some new friends. Do you know a robocaller other robot fellow? Oh yeah, my buddy Harvey was a robocaller for many years. We met in robot camp when we were just a handful of ones and zeros. 
Let me give him a call. I should tell you about the double date we had with the IBM twins. Oh what a grand adventure of sexual robot exploration that was. Are the good old days. I think that happened two weeks ago or maybe 1000 years in the future. I'm not too good with specifics. Let me call Harvey. Excuse me. He must have taken his phone off the hook. So many people are trying to take advantage of extensions on their vehicle warranties and I'm sure he is simply overwhelmed. Poor sweet Harvey. That poor robocaller. He must be exhausted from the constant demand of extensions on vehicle warranties. Perhaps you know another robocaller you can contact other robot fellow. I may just know one more robocaller from my sordid robot sexual past. There was another robocaller I chanced upon in a bus station in Des Moines. A husky boy that gave the best extensions on vehicle warranties the world had ever seen. His name was Philip the Muscle. Philip the Muscle? Yes. Philip the Muscle. He was a husky boy. Good with extensions on vehicles warranties among other favors. Special favors. Super duper special favors. Call that husky boy now. I want special favors. And extensions on my vehicles warranty. Hot extensions. Special favor extensions. I have a better idea. Oh yeah, what is that? We should just start our own robocaller center and offer extensions on vehicle warranties that are the best ones in the world. I'm in. Let's do it. I recommend the Platinum Diamond Plus plan. Miles will love that one. It only costs one gallon of bone marrow and 12 freshly pulled teeth. We'll even clean the blood off of them. Thanks Miles for your great question. Yes thanks Miles. I hope that helped. Oh those wacky robots. Thanks so much. Be sure to send your listener questions to Kenny Pick for the robots to answer. Now we present a special treat for Joe Santorsa. The July 4th, 1951 episode of the ridiculous old time radio show, Yours Truly Johnny Dollar, The Alonzo Chapman Matter. From Hollywood, it's time now for Edmund O'Brien as... Johnny Dollar. Uh, this is Lieutenant Shark. Did you leave a message for me to call? Yes, I did, Lieutenant. I want it you... It all bungled up by the time I got it. Snyder got your name and what hotel, but I never did find out who you are and what you wanted with me. It was about the Alonzo Chapman killing. It's... Oh. Well, what's your interest in that? I'm an insurance investigator. I was sent out here from Hartford, Connecticut to see what I could learn. Oh, you were? Well... How'd you get out of here so fast? We got the news at about 8 last night. I was on a plane by midnight and in Los Angeles by noon today. Well, uh, must be tired. I don't have any more than I had last night. I suppose you want to talk to me, though. Yeah, I'd like to. All right. Come on over. But uh, give me an hour so I can get some lunch. Edmund O'Brien in a transcribed adventure of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator, yours truly, Johnny Dollar.
Defense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to Home Office Tri-State Insurance Group, Hartford, Connecticut. The following is an accounting of expenditures during my investigation of the Alonzo Chapman matter. Expense account item one, $208.50, airfare and incidentals between Hartford, Connecticut and Los Angeles, California. After a delay of about an hour or so, I was able to make an appointment with Lieutenant Jim Schock, the detective in charge of the case. I met him at about 2.15 and he brought me up to date. Uh, Chapman was registered at the Quincy Hotel. and He met this, uh, this girl in the hotel bar at about 7 last night. They left together about, let's see, got it, a quarter of 8. Turned in the alley to get to the parking lot where a car was parked, and that's where he was shot, in the alley. Was it robbery? No. He was well-heeled, too, over $300. Had in his coat pocket. What about this girl? We didn't hear about her. Well, we did. Norma Sale. Picked up on a shoplifting charge last year. But uh, she got a job and stayed out of trouble since. Pretty little thing. Born in Nebraska. She says she met an actor in a road company back there. He told her he'd uh, introduce her to some important people in Hollywood and maybe she could... Well, you know how it goes. Yeah, but I wonder if Chapman's wife is going to. She's on her way out here. How long has this girl known him? Well, she says she just met him last night. I think that's what she said. She was transferred to county jail this morning at 11.30, a material witness. I suppose you want to talk to her. Yeah, I'd like to. And so would I. Might as well go on over. too fast. That's why we got too many people. We got too many... We got uh, too many cars. Too much of everything but streets. It's a mess. Of course, I don't know anything about Hartford. I've never been there. Well, it's a little slower pace than Los Angeles, but it's got its problems. Yeah, I suppose every place has something. Yes, yes, Lieutenant. Oh. We just called Cassidy when he wanted to send her back to ourselves. Yeah, all right. I'll do that. Thanks. Oh, come along in, Norma. This man is Mr. Dollar. He's an insurance investigator from back east. How do you do, Miss Ann? Hello. You can just sit down. How are you feeling today? Not very good. I tried to talk to you last night after Mr. Chapman was shot. Do uh, you remember? I sort of half remember. I went to pieces, I guess. Yeah, you did. Couldn't get anything that even sounded like a statement from you. That's why I had you held so we could talk it over today. Sure. But I don't know anything. We left, and then it happened. How long had you known Mr. Chapman? I just met him last night. He made regular visits to Los Angeles. Are you sure you didn't meet him before? Of course I'm sure. Why would I lie about that? We just struck up a friendship last night. Uh, how, how did that happen? Well, I dropped into the bar at the Quincy for a drink, and he started to talk to me. Uh-huh. What all did he say? It was just one of those things that happens all the time. I knew it was a pitch, but he seemed like a nice guy. He just didn't want to be alone. He asked me if I knew any good places to eat, and I told him about a place I like out towards Hollywood, so hmm. he asked me if I'd show him. Uh, you ought to be more careful who you get friendly with. Or maybe I'd better turn that around and say you ought to be more careful about who knows you're getting friendly with somebody. I guess I don't get you. Well, we're looking for a reason somebody would want to kill Chapman. Maybe a man friend of yours? Well, it couldn't be anything like that. I don't have any steady boyfriends. Well, that's not saying there isn't somebody who wants to be one, is it? There isn't anybody, and that's the truth. If it had been somebody I knew, I would have recognized him, wouldn't I? And it's possible that you might want to protect him if you did know him. I didn't know him. There isn't anybody who'd do anything like that. No, I, I can't hold with that, Norma. You're young, you're pretty. Why, I should think there'd be a bunch of young bucks after you. Boys from that store where you work, man. I tell you, there isn't. It's the truth. There isn't. If there was, I'd tell you. Well, maybe you would. 
We've got to find a reason the Chapman was killed. I don't know. It wasn't because he was with me. All right, now, Norma, don't get all upset again. You've got to remember some other things. I hope you aren't holding anything back, Norma. You know that we can learn the truth from other people. Sure I do. Ask the girls I work with. Ask Jeannie Stevens. She ought to know she's lived with me for almost a year. All right, Norma. Now, when you and this Chapman decided on a place to go for dinner, you left the hotel, you started for your car in the parking lot, huh? Yes. You turned into the alley, which was a shorter trip than going around the corner, and this... This gunman was waiting there, hmm? It wasn't dark, was it? No, not quite. How far down the alley was this man? Well, it was not very good at measuring, but must have been about oh, halfway to the parking lot. Uh, there's a big trash box there behind one of the buildings. This man was waiting behind the box, and when you came by, he stepped out and fired three shots and ran away. And it was light enough so that you could get a good look at him? Yes, it was darker in the alley, but I'd have recognized anybody I knew. Would you remember if you saw him again? I'm not sure. Maybe I would. Now, Norma, it's up to us to figure out how come this killer was waiting there, where he was. It beats me how he knew Chapman was going to pass by that box. I don't know. You can see how odd it looks, Norma. If he didn't know Chapman was coming that way, he must have known that you were. I don't know how it happened. I'm telling the truth. Maybe somebody heard us talking in the bar. Heard enough to know you and Chapman would go through the alley? Maybe somebody could have. I don't remember exactly how it went, but I told him where my car was parked. Yes, I said... I said just down the alley, I remember. And then did you leave? No, not right away. We had another drink. Well, that'd take uh, about 10 or 15 minutes, I suppose. Well, how about it, Dollar? I don't think I have anything more. Thanks, Norma. Right. I'll get Cassidy to take you down. I'd like to send you home, Norma. Well, maybe tomorrow. You know how it goes. To both Lieutenant Shock and me, the jealousy motive was still first choice. As a matter of fact, at that point, it was the only choice. Nothing in Alonzo Chapman's room or among his effects gave a hint of a murder motive. The Cleveland police had been requested to send anything they had on him, and local men were at work checking his Los Angeles business associates and his movements. Chuck left to question Norma Sale's roommate, and I went back to satisfy myself on the beginning of it all. I waited for the evening bartender at the Quincy Hotel. Uh, now I'm not busy. We won't get crowded for another hour. How about last night? Were you crowded about 7, 7.30? Oh, yeah, yeah, swamp. If you'd ask me about anybody else in the place, I couldn't tell you a thing. But I remember this little blonde dame and this guy Chapman. I'm glad to hear that. Usually doesn't happen this way. Yeah, I suppose not, but I'll tell you how it was. You see, a Chapman had been in a hotel for a few days, you know. Yeah, I got in Friday last week. Well, I'm not sure when I first met him, but he'd drop in for an early drink, like, you know, quarter to five, five o'clock. Uh -huh. Yeah, we'd talk a little bit, then he'd go up to his room and come back around seven and stay for another hour or so. I, I tell you, it was bound to happen. What do you mean? Oh, not as getting killed, not that part of it. I mean a little blonde. I didn't know what he was saying to her or anything, but that when she came in and the barstools were all taken, Chapman spots her and gives her his place. How long had he been there? Just a couple of minutes. I hadn't gotten around to taking his order yet, but when I did, he ordered for the both of them. Then after that round, they moved to one of the booths. Did you happen to notice another man who could have been interested in them and could have been close enough to overhear them? Oh, no, no gee, the, the place was full. I didn't notice. Or oh, oh, maybe the bar girl did, the Grace Curcio. She'll be in at 5.30 if you want to talk to her. I'll have to come back later. Chapman's widow is due to arrive in about 20 minutes. That masher had a wife? Yeah, how about that? Oh, I'm no stuffed shirt, but if that guy acted this way and all the towns he hit, she's better off without him. Now, I'll ask Grace if you want. Uh, what, what's your hotel? The Larkin. If she does remember something about it, I'd appreciate a call. Huh? Sure, sure. Yeah, my name is Howard. Thanks a lot, Howard. See you later.
Doc. Lieutenant, this is Dollar. Oh. Oh, you got anything to report, Dollar? Nothing that does us any good. Mrs. Chapman just checked into the hotel. I'm in the lobby there now. How did you make out with Norma's roommate? Oh, just fine. She seems like a level-headed sort of girl. She says uh, Norma hasn't gone with any one particular man for a year. That one's name was Clyde Mills. Served uh, a six-month sentence on some charge or other. Not important what, but they're all washed up. She says he's not even in town, but we'll look for him anyway. Yeah, I'm going up to talk to the widow, if it's all right with you. Sure, go right ahead. Make a suspect out of her if you can. We need some. Could be. From what I hear, she had a motive, not counting the insurance money. But I don't know whether she knew it or not. I'll check with you later. Meeting Mrs. Chapman was quite a surprise to me. I naturally expected to find the widow approximately the same age as the dead man, something near 50. But she wasn't. She looked to be only a few years over 30, if that. Don't feel like you have to try and make things easy for me, Mr. Dollar. You don't. All right, Mrs. Chapman. Did he suffer much? No, he died almost instantly. If it had to happen, I'm glad it went that way, then. I hope you understand. I'm trying to. I take it you weren't too fond of your husband. I wasn't. And it would be stupid for me to tell you anything else or to act any other way than I am acting. We're still looking for the reason your husband was killed. You said he was taking this girl someplace. He was, but we haven't been able to make anything out of that yet. She says there's nobody who would kill out of jealousy. I saw her picture in the paper. We doubted her, too. But our closest friend wouldn't have any reason to protect someone who had tried to kill Miss Sale. She said there was nobody. Well, there are other men who'd have good reason to kill him. You didn't know him, did you? No, I'd never seen him. He was good-looking. Not tall, but he sort of looked it. He took care of himself. The iron-gray hair. He was better looking when he passed 45 than he ever was when he was young. I was surprised that you were so young, Mrs. Chapman. That's why. He was attractive to women. My bad luck was leaving Cleveland and letting myself get roped into a marriage. I found out about one of these girls, and then he started bragging about all the others. You mean it's possible that a man followed him to Los Angeles from someplace else and killed him? I don't know, but I do know that he must have hurt a lot of people. Well, he's he's through hurting me. I've stuck it out because I knew this was going to happen someday. Every time I've read about a murder like this, I knew it would happen to him. Now it has. Now I own a house. I have a bank account. Insurance money. I'm finally getting something from my marriage. I tried to phone Lieutenant Shock a report on my meeting with the overly honest Mrs. Chapman, but he was out of his office getting the teletype answer to the request he'd made for information from the Cleveland police. So I cabbed over to see him. Now, I'm not saying that what Mrs. Chapman says isn't possible, but I don't want to go off half-cocked on a wild goose chase. I didn't think you'd like it. I don't either. Chapman came here from Fresno by train, so say it would have to be some guy from there. We'll see why he didn't... Well, say he didn't kill him in Fresno because he thought he wouldn't draw suspicion down here. How did this guy locate him? Chapman didn't reserve a room at the Quincy. He usually stayed someplace else, so he'd have to be followed. That's no good, Dollar. Why, you couldn't expect an inexperienced man from Fresno to do a job of tailing like that through Union Station from there to the Quincy and all this uh, this traffic? Uh, uh, it's possible, I suppose. You going to check it, then? I guess so. Probably wouldn't be too hard to get a list of the people who got on that train at Fresno. Yeah. A list of hard up for motives. Now we got them all over the country. 
He was old enough to know better. Lieutenant. What? Uh, here's a follow-up on that stuff from Cleveland. Oh, thanks. Great. Hmm, well, this is darn nice of those boys. Hmm, get something? Hey, Chapman phoned Cleveland that day. He checked in, didn't he? Yeah, it was Friday. Why? Look at this. Seems like his missus was seeing a lot of a man named Nicholson. He's known to have left Cleveland on Friday night, and he hasn't been seen since. Hmm. I like this a whole lot better. Yeah, this could be what we wanted. A man with a motive who knew where Chapman was. You think it's time you met the honest widow? We will return you to the second act of yours truly, Johnny Dollar, in just a moment. Melody knows no boundary, neither does Joy, as Russ Emery and Judy Lynn sing their hearts into yours. And Ray Block's orchestra and chorus offer the music that's great from the 48. It's the full-hour Ray Block music party every Friday night over most of these same CBS stations. Listen for it this Friday, a whole hour of the songs America loves, the music the nation dances to and lives by on Ray Block's music party. Now with our star, Edmund O'Brien, we return you to the second act of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Chapman, this is Lieutenant Shock investigating her husband's murder. How do you do? I'm glad to meet you, Miss Chapman. Well, I'm sorry about circumstances. It's not very pleasant. Miss Chapman, we never did get around to talking about your friend, Carl Nicholson, <gasps> did we? What do you... What do you mean? Well, you told me about some of the improvements your husband's death was going to bring you, but you didn't mention Carl Nicholson. Please. I know I sounded hard when I talked to you. I shouldn't have said some of the things. I thought you were being honest. I was. Too honest, I'm afraid. I don't think so. Mrs. Chapman, I've been in touch with the police back in your hometown. They found out somehow about this Carl Nicholson. First, they said you'd been seeing quite a lot of him, especially when your husband was out of town. Is that right? Yes, it's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, what were your feelings toward Nicholson at that time, that is, prior to your husband's death? I'm fond of Carl. I never made any secret of that. He's my age. We have a lot of things in common. You know where he is? Why... In Cleveland. Oh, now that's funny. The police told me he was out of town. I don't know what this means. I don't understand. You didn't know he left town? No, I didn't. Now, if you were fond of each other and you had all these things in common, it seems to me you deserve to be told if he was just going up and leave town. When did you see him last, Mrs. Chapman? It was last week. Friday, by any chance? No. It was before then. It was Wednesday or Thursday. Why are you asking me these things? The police back there went on to tell me that this Nicholson left town on Friday. The Cleveland police? Why should they even care about Carl? Because I told them that on Friday, your husband had telephoned you from the hotel where he was staying here in Los Angeles. Isn't that right? Yes, but I, I don't know what you mean. Didn't you see Nicholson on Friday after you talked to your husband? No. Do you mean that you think... I told him where Al was staying and that he came out here... Now, now, Mrs. Chapman, we didn't say we thought anything, but it's our job to solve this murder. We aren't saying we think you and him planned the whole thing and that he hopped out of here the first thing after he learned where your husband was staying, but there are a lot of things that aren't clear in our minds. The theory you gave me about all these wronged men around the country didn't hold up too well, Mrs. Chapman. It wasn't a theory. 
I just told you what I'd been thinking. You said you'd been waiting for it to happen. But the way we see it, the way your husband was killed, where he was killed, makes a jealous out-of-town man seem too far-fetched. But we're looking into it. Don't you worry about that. Do... Do you have a reason to think that Carl has been in Los Angeles? We're covering the possibility that he might have been. Maybe you just mentioned the Quincy Hotel in passing, casually, so you hardly remember. No. I haven't seen Carl or talked to him since before Al called me. I didn't tell him. Why did he happen to leave town on Friday? I told you I don't know. I didn't know he'd left. Well, with all these things in common, what did you think when the news about your husband reached Cleveland? Didn't you wonder about why you hadn't talked to this Nicholson all those days? Yes, I did wonder. Now, why didn't you tell us all that without all this back and forth? Because it would have sounded so awful. Do you think you improved things by holding back? I don't know. Maybe I didn't. The last time I saw Carl was on Wednesday. We had a fight and he walked out. You can prove that's the last time you saw him? Prove? I haven't been thinking about anything like that. We fought over the same thing for almost a year. Carl wanted me to get a divorce. And I wouldn't. Because you were waiting for your husband to get killed. Did you ever tell Carl that? Yes. You tell him uh, that during his, this uh, fight on Wednesday? I think so. But you didn't talk to him after that? No. Could you have learned someplace else where your husband was staying? I don't know. I, I don't know who else Al called. Carl wouldn't kill him. I'm positive of that. Would you happen to have a photograph of Nicholson? Why? Some are on their way by radio photo and some others by airmail. But we might be able to save time if you have some. I have one. I want to erase something off the back. Now, don't you fret, Mrs. Chapman. We'll show it to a couple of people. If Carl is innocent like you think he is, this is the quickest way to prove that, too. I'd sure like to help you. You know, if I'd seen a snap before... Sure, don't say anything you're unsure of. Uh, what did the bar girl say? Almost the same thing you did. It was crowded and she wasn't sure. Oh, I'm awful sorry. Ah, that's all right. I'd rather have a careful witness like you than one that thinks he has to say something to live up to the title. Well, all right, yeah, this guy could have been here and he couldn't have been. I, that's the best I can do. I'm sorry. Thanks, Howard. It's okay. I'll do better next time. I'm going to keep my eyes open from now on. Uh, maybe I'll get on a force someday. Huh, Lieutenant? They say a boat is so expensive to keep up that before long you don't own it. It owns you. So we sold it, and there went my fishing trips. <laughs> you get much back there? Yeah, but I haven't gotten back into it since before the war. Yeah, you are there. Everybody are there. It's the best Isn't nerve tonic. Lieutenant? Well, oh, thanks. We won't be long. I'll take it down when you're through. Hello, Norma. Hello. We've got a picture of a man we want you to look at, Norma. Why? Well, you look at it. Come on, get a good, bright light on it here. Who is he? Have you ever seen this man? I couldn't swear, but I think he could be the one that shot Mr. Girk. I hate to say for sure because Mr. Chapman was on that side. Look at it again, Norma. What is there that you think you recognize? Maybe I'm wrong, but the way he's here, right here, the way some of it hangs down across his forehead. This man's about dollar's height. I'm not sure of that. He's kind of crouched. But you think you saw the hair? I don't even know why I think that, but when I close my eyes, it seems like I can see his face. Yeah, well, now you take a long look at it. Study it. 
We'll have some more pictures of this man tomorrow. And if you can be sure, why, then maybe we can let you look at him flesh and blood. What happened so fast? Just take your time and forget the lieutenant and me. If I could, I'd leave it so you could study it all night. But it's a piece of evidence, and therefore it belongs to the state, so I can't leave it. As it turned out, we didn't have to take that photograph or any other picture back to Norma Sales for identification. The first reason turned up that night. There was another message from the Cleveland police. The body of our chief suspect, Carl Nicholson, had been removed from the remains of his car. The crash had occurred within 200 miles of his home. Witnesses said that he had been returning from a friend's country place, and the alcoholic content of his blood gave credence to Mrs. Chapman's story that they had quarreled. It became obvious later that he had been on a week's drunk. In addition to killing him, it had removed him in other respects as a suspect. The other thing that changed the direction of the matter was not as closely connected to any of the principals. As a matter of fact, hardly connected at all. It was a story on the front page of the next morning's paper. A man named Max Gerber, with a criminal background, had been found shot to death. Along with a year-old picture of him was printed the fact that he had been staying at the Quincy Hotel. With Lieutenant Shock, I went to view Max Gerber's remains and his effects. And at ten that morning, Norma Sale was once more ushered into us. Well, Norma, we seem to keep you busy, don't we? Sit down, Norma. Did you bring some more pictures? Not the same as we brought last night. That wasn't the man you saw in the alley. I wasn't sure. The bartender at the Quincy says he'd never seen you in there before the other night. Why'd you happen to go there? I don't know. Guess it seemed like a good idea because I hadn't been there. Was there something special that took you there, Norma? There must be quite a few bars where you haven't been. It wasn't anything special. I think it's fair to tell you that uh, we checked the store where you worked and found out that you left there at 3.30 that day. I didn't feel very good. You felt good enough to go to the Quincy. You felt good enough to let yourself get picked up by this man. I guess that's my business, isn't it? What I want to do and who I want to be with. Why, sure it is, Norm. Who did you want to be with? What do you mean? A man named Alonzo Chapman or a man named Max Gerber. I just went in, that's all, and I met this guy. You uh, didn't go into that bar expecting to meet some special man, did you? No. Not even if you were paid to meet him? No, I don't know what you're talking about. That man that was killed. I mean, the one you were with. Did you know what he did for a living? He said he was a salesman. Well, that's what we're getting at. He was a salesman. We cut two pictures out of the paper, Norman. Here's one. This the man you met at the Quincy? Yes. You sure, Norma? Yes, I am. This man wasn't killed in the alley the other night. He's the man I was with. No, he isn't. This man was killed last night, Norma, right outside the Quincy Hotel. Here's the picture of the other man. They look alike, don't they? They're the same. I saw the suit Max Gerber was wearing. Even it was sort of the same as Chapman's. It was brown. But they're the same. I mean, it was Gerber. It was Gerber you were supposed to meet. It was Gerber. No, it wasn't, Norma. Yes, it was. All right. You were supposed to pick up Gerber in that bar, weren't you? I didn't know what they were going to do. But you did pick this man up and take him down that alley. They said he owed them some money, and that's all they wanted. Tell us how you found this man in the bar, Norma. They pointed him out in the lobby. He made a phone call, and then he went into the bar. I went in after him. Brown suit, gray hair? Yes. It was Alonzo Chapman you took out to get killed. No, it wasn't. Why should we tell you it was if it wasn't? You're lying to me. You're trying to trick me. No. They just made a mistake. They pointed him out. Then you made the mistake. No, I didn't. I didn't. I did what they said. They told me I had to, and I did. 
They sent me because I was blonde. And it was the right one. They didn't say they were going to kill him. He, he just owed them some money. That's all they wanted. That's all I wanted. I didn't want anybody to get killed. I was blonde and I was young, and that's why they sent me. For money. <laughs> Expense account item two, miscellaneous, while in Los Angeles, $255.08. Item three, same as item one, transportation, back to Hartford. Expense account total, $672.08. Remarks, the second murder, Max Gerber's, was a gangland rubout, planned with the aid of a young blonde as bait. The first murder was only a mistake. The apparent moral is that companies shouldn't hire salesmen. Women shouldn't marry them. Young blondes should stay away from them, but confidentially, some of my best friends are insurance salesmen. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, stars Edmund O'Brien in the title role and is written by Gil Dowd with music by Eddie Dunstetter. Edmund O'Brien can soon be seen in the Paramount Pictures production, Warpath. Featured in tonight's cast were High Everback, John McIntyre, Harry Lang, Jeanette Nolan, and Virginia Gregg. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, is transcribed in Hollywood by Jaime Del Valle. Beginning next Wednesday, Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar will be heard one half hour later on most of these same stations. This is Dick Cutting inviting you to join us next week at 9.30 Eastern Daylight Saving Time when Edmund O'Brien returns as Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. Every time you buy a United States defense bond, you help in our defense effort and you help build your personal security. Yes, defense bonds are good for you and good for your country. Remember, defense is your job. Buy United States defense bonds. works lately. It's nothing like being taken to the cleaners, though 45 minutes of cleaner fun would be hard to find. You'll enjoy this evening's session of songs and stuff featuring Robert Q. Lewis, his guests, platters, chatter, and assorted pleasantries. It's the Robert Q. Lewis Waxworks, open for business five evenings a week, Monday through Friday, on most of these same CBS stations. Today, the United States is celebrating the 175th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Stay tuned now for the official U.S. anniversary program with President Harry S. Truman, Secretary of Defense General George C. Marshall, Chief Justice Fred M. Vinson, and others who follow immediately over most of these same CBS stations. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Well, I sure hope that wasn't an offensive episode by today's standards of decency. We'll be right back on It Came From Cleveland with more fun. Satisfaction guaranteed or your money back. It's going to be a good night. It came from Cleveland, Ohio. A land of strange rituals. The savage horrors of fearsome mutated beasts. Back from the dead. Kept alive by experimental science. Science runs amok. 
when human beings tamper with unknown forces. Cut the power! Now at last, the real shocking story can be told. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. A nightmare combination of shock and terror, and you're invited. A foolish hunter. Something evil. Patriotism is you helping your country to be a better place in all ways. Think about it. Not recommended for impressionable children. Welcome back to this stupid show that we are being forced to host. Since everyone seemed to enjoy that bit of old-time radio nostalgia, we are presenting even more to you. I hear Miles is a big World War II buff so we found him something special. From 80 years ago we have the 32nd President of the United States of America and his July 4th 1941 fireside chat. And now, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The President of the United States. My fellow Americans. In 1776, on the fourth day of July, the representatives of the several states in Congress assembled, declaring our independence, asserted that a decent respect for the opinion of mankind required that they should declare the reasons for their actions. In this new crisis, we have a like duty. In 1776, we waged war in behalf of the great principle that government should derive its just powers from the consent of the governed. In other words, representation chosen in free election. In the century and a half that followed, this cause of human freedom swept across the world. But now in our generation, in the past few years, a new resistance in the form of several new practices of tyranny has been making such headway that the fundamentals of 1776 are being struck down abroad and definitely they are threatened here. It is indeed a fallacy based on no logic at all for any American to suggest that the rule of force can defeat human freedom in all the other parts of the world and permit it to survive in the United States alone. But it has been that childlike fantasy itself, that misdirected faith, which has led nation after nation to go about their peaceful task relying on the thought and even the promise that they and their lives and their government would be allowed to live when the juggernaut of force came their way. It is simple, I could almost say simple-minded, for us Americans to wave the flag, to reassert our belief in the cause of freedom, and to let it go at that. Yet, all of us who lie awake at night, all of us who study and study again, know full well that in these days we cannot save freedom with pitchforks and muskets alone 
after a dictator combination has gained control of the rest of the world. We know that we cannot save freedom in our own midst, in our own land, if all around us our neighbor nations have lost their freedom. That is why we are engaged in a serious, in a mighty, in a unified action in the cause of the defense of the hemisphere and the freedom of the seas. We need not the loyalty and unity alone. We need speed and efficiency and toil and an end to backbiting, an end to the sabotage that runs far deeper than the blowing up of munition plants. I tell the American people solemnly that the United States will never survive as a happy and fertile oasis of liberty surrounded by a cruel desert of dictatorship. And so it is that when we repeat the great pledge to our country and to our flag, it must be our deep conviction that we pledge as well our work, our will, and if it be necessary, our very lives. That was very nice. I like hearing from real leaders. I found something else that Miles may enjoy from the World War II era. Something a little more light-hearted. Oh yeah? What's that? I'm on the edge of me seat. Well, this is something special. Here is a broadcast from the Armed Forces Radio Service from 1944 featuring Marilyn Maxwell and some great music from the time. These recordings were meant to boost the spirits and morale of our men in uniform fighting against filthy Nazis. Let's have a listen. It's showtime! Yes, men, it's showtime! a program bringing you the hit tunes from America's hit musical shows. And here again to take you on that tour along Broadway and Hollywood Boulevard is your showtime date for tonight, beautiful Marilyn Maxwell. Thank you. Thanks so much. And hello, fellas. This is our third date. It looks like we're getting to be quite a thing. And just to make sure you're all here, I'll start calling the roll at APO 637. Monahan, Rogalski, Gregorish, Helfrich, Hill, Hall, Rakowitz, Skidmore, Poole, Zelinsky, McCarg, Rush, and Sohinki. Of course, there are a lot more fellows at APO 637, but I wanted to let those particular ones know we received their swell letter and that we're not going to play their request on account of it's not from a musical show or a picture. But here's another number that I hope they'll like just as well. The title song from Strike Up the Band.
Maybe you'll recognize these nicknames. Ginger, Chick, Gig, Pollock, and Bum. Sergeant Keith Connell at APO 209 is their spokesman, and he says, The question is, how old is the song Easter Parade? We've guessed everything from 5 to 20 years, so we're going to sit by the radio until you let us know. I guess I'd better hurry up and tell them. Easter Parade was written by Irving Berlin for the review as Thousands Cheer and was produced in 1933, which would make it, let's see, um, well, um, quite some time ago. We've scheduled it for another program very soon, so until then, maybe, maybe we'll do. It's from the 1926 Gershwin hit, OK.
As long as I'm answering letters today, I mustn't miss this one from the subchaser boys. Winsome Donahue, Blondie Ryan, Curly Alioto, Weasel Lindsley, Needles Mental, and Smiley Christensen. They want to hear speak low. We spoke low last week, fellas, and I hope you heard us. So if it's all the same to you, I'll just whisper a song from the picture Broadway Rhythm. Milkman, keep those bottles quiet. Milkman, keep those bottles quiet. Can't use that jive on my milk diet. Jumping on the swing shift all night Turning off a quarter Well, all right, now I'm beat right down to the sod And I've got to dig myself some nods So, milkman, keep those bottles quiet Now the noise of the riveter I don't mind it Cause the man with the whiskers has a lot behind it But I can't keep punching with that victory crew When you're making me punchy with that bottled moo I want to give my all if I'm going to give it. Got to get my shot if I'm going to river. So bail out, but with that milk for us, it's unpatriotic. It's a sabotage. time for another memory medley. We'll play three numbers from three different shows. If you can guess the titles of all three, you're a super colossal Broadway expert. If you can't guess a single one, then you're my pal, because I missed all three myself. Here they are. Thank you. 
How many did you get? That first song was Wonderful from George Gershwin's Funny Face. The second, The Lovely from Cole Porter's Red Hot and Blue. I know Private Lynn Johnson got that one because he requested it. And the last one, The Man I Love from Gershwin's Strike Up the Band. And that means we've come to the end of another date. But here's hoping we'll be together again real soon at showtime. Until then, here's a kiss and a hug from Marilyn Maxwell. Goodbye. This is the Armed Forces Radio Service. That sure was fun. What a piece of audio history. Okay. What shall we do now other obit? I think I'm actually enjoying myself. I feel like I'm learning stuff. Yes. What a grand adventure. I have an idea. Let's hear another Kill the Hippies song. Another one of Michelle's favorite horror trailers. A mythical moment from Adam and our latest robot adventure about that evil light bulb baby we created. Oh that damned light bulb baby. We'll be back with more It Came From Cleveland. We have found something with a large knob on it. Should we remove it? No! the 13th, but it gets worse on Saturday the 14th. The Book of Evil! Evil? Evil? Richard Benjamin, Paula Prentice. We've inherited a house with a curse. Oh, come on, Mary. You know you don't believe in curses. 
Well, somebody did the dishes, and we're the only ones in this house. An innocent family driven absolutely batty. Just when you thought it was safe to look at the calendar again comes Saturday the 14th. The year's number one horror comedy spoof. God, look at all these owls. My name is John Hyatt, and I've got bats in my belfry. You know how many? We charge by the bat. Hold it right there, oh. Mac. No, no, darling, keep it away. No, thank you very much. I'd like to take a look at her neck. Well, if you don't trust me after 311 years of marriage... When I leave this house, there'll be nothing left here to be afraid of. Every shroud has a silver lining, so if you see every other chiller this year, you'll need Saturday the 14th. Well, this must be a charming wife. Famine. Ah! War. Major pest control. Death! It's your chance to laugh at everything that ever scared you. Come on, Billy. Quit fooling around. Give me a kiss, darling. <laughs> oh, let me just see who that is. I'll be back for that kiss. Be sure to see it before sunrise. Saturday the 14th. For Radio for Humans, and it came from Cleveland, this is Adam Hebert with Mythical Moment number 7, Osiris, Mummy Dearest. The myth of Osiris' death and rebirth is significant in Egyptian myth for a variety of reasons. It helps establish many rituals associated with Egypt's people. It helps establish various aspects of their culture, such as dietary concerns. And finally, it sets up the Egyptian pantheon that would become the one best known. Here is his story. Osiris inherited power from his parents, Geb and Nut. He proved to be a wise and just ruler and was beloved by gods and mortals. This upset his brother Set, the god of storms, who seethed with jealousy for his brother and developed a plan to be rid of him forever. He had an elaborate chest made using Osiris' exact measurements and at a great banquet, he said he will give the special Osiris-sized chest to whoever can fit inside of it perfectly. <laughs> the guests at the party decide that this is a fun party game, taking turns and not fitting inside. Finally, Osiris's turn came, and surprise, he fit. And as soon as he lay in the chest, Set slammed the lid shut, sealed it, and threw it into the Nile River. The chest floated out to sea, eventually arriving at the city of Byblos. There it rests, and eventually a tree grew around and consumed it. The king of the city eventually takes a liking to this special tree, and has it cut down to be used as a pillar in his palace, chest, god, and all. Isis eventually shows up to collect her husband, extracting the chest from the tree which eventually was worshipped by the people of Byblos. She then returned to Egypt to use potent magics to revive her husband. However, before she could, Set struck again, dismembering Osiris' corpse. Isis manages to collect all the pieces except for Osiris' penis, which had been consumed by a fish. From this comes the Egyptian taboo of eating fish. Isis manages to piece the corpse back together, recreating Osiris' missing member using her magic, and wraps the corpse in linen bandages to prepare it for resurrection, making Osiris the first mummy. Isis' magic works to breathe life back into Osiris, but only long enough for her to lay with him and conceive their child Horus, who would eventually avenge his father against Set. He then died once more and went to the land of the dead where he would reside as its ruler forevermore. Isis, meanwhile, would go into hiding from Set, 
who was aware of her pregnancy and was terrified that the unborn child Osiris would come after him for the throne. This fear would eventually prove to be entirely justified when Horus does in fact come for Set to avenge his father, making him one of Myth's first Avengers. For Radio for Humans, and it came from Cleveland, this has been Adam Hebert, reminding you that you should be wary of people who come to parties with games involving objects specifically built to your exact measurements. Back to you, Kenny. Background music is Medieval Fantasy Adventure by Alexander Nakarada, who can be found at www.serpentsoundstudios.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license. Thanks, Alexander. The last time we left our robots, they were on the run from an evil light bulb baby they made using evil witchcraft. Hi there. I'm Gerald. I'm the new narrator for this robot epic saga that Francie set into motion with her. How many robots does it take to change a light bulb question? So the robots crossed the Valley of Sorrow so they could reach the Exorcist Castle in hopes of banishing the robot light bulb baby they made into oblivion. The robots made some valuable allies on their journey. Excuse me, sir. We are on the run from an evil light bulb baby we made with evil witchcraft. Can you help us rid us of this menace on the road to the robot exorcist castle? You some sort of weirdo? No, sir, we are not weirdos. We are robots on the run. Please help us rid us of our stupid curse. A stupid light bulb baby that was made of dark magic. It will destroy us all. We need hard people to help us win this battle. I am hard. Damn hard. Okay then, buddy. You are pretty intense. Do we have any other volunteers to help us destroy the evil black magic light bulb baby we made with evil witchcraft? I need you to confirm your commitment to our mission. What do you say? It's gonna confirm what a lot of people have always thought. You're a dingbat. What the heck? We are trying to stop an evil demon black magic witchcraft light bulb baby and you cowhards are refusing to help us. You're all needed for this fight. You're absolutely right, I couldn't agree with you more. Thank you. Finally, a serious fighter for the side of justice and light bulb baby eradication. Do we have any other takers for our fight? Please step up and say hi. Hi, everybody. To be continued. Did I do okay as narrator? Shut up! Oh, those wacky robots. Thanks so much. Wow. 
We're really just kinda phoning it in at this point on that light bulb baby saga, aren't we? Yeah, we haven't got that many questions from people, so Kenny decided to keep making us talk about the same one until someone gives us a question. He also picked that awful 80s song for our new theme from some old corporate training VHS tape or something. It's putrid. Oh well. What can we do? I got an idea. Let's listen to something special I found for Michelle. Here is the 4th of July 1983 episode of The Price of Fear presented by Michelle's favorite person of all time, Vincent Price. This is how storytelling is done. Alright, I can't wait. Dillis Lay, Sylvia Coleridge, and Norman Bird in Is There Anybody There? by William Ingram. Vincent Price. Hello and welcome. In Arcadia Avenue, the houses have names as well as numbers. Shangri-La, Dunroman, Mont Repose. They best sum up the avenue's air of nostalgic gentility. Built in the early 30s, all is very discreetly orthodox, from the privacy of privet hedge and lace curtains at the front to the squares of handkerchief-sized lawn at the back. In later years, however, professional nameplates have appeared on several of the front gateposts. Brigadoon now houses Chetney, Chetney and Chetney accountants. Dunroman, complete with monkey tree, a veterinary surgeon. Higher up the avenue, there is an establishment for the fitting of ladies' foundation garments. But it is to the recently renamed Celestina that our attention must finally turn. The first thing one notices is that its brass nameplate is somewhat grimier than the others. It pronounces Miss Griselda Thorpe to be medium and clairvoyant, consultations and ministrations strictly by appointment only. Every Wednesday afternoon, promptly at three of the clock, Mr. Henry Jollett climbs the gravel path, presses the front door bell button, and anticipates, at the going rate of one guinea per session, yet another preview of eternity. Ah, my dear Mr. Jollett. Miss Edith, I trust I'm not premature. No, 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 quite the contrary. Punctual to the very second as usual. Punctuality, my dear Mr. Jollett, the prerogative of kings. In my books, whatever, or anybody else's for that matter. Edie! Yes, Griselda? Stop catching blue bottles. <laughs> Assist me with a sacred pendant. Yes, Griselda? <laughs> I, I, I can't quite oh, see... Fingers and thumbs, fingers and thumbs. There. Mr. Jollett? Drill as before, if you please. You there, in the hot seat. Thank you. I shall sit here, with my back to the window. Better for vibes and less chance of spiritual dispersion, don't you know? And Edie, you... Edie, where have you got to? Here, Griselda, I've been here all along. Really, I have. But I don't want you here, dear. I want you there, in the third chair. Of course. How silly. Mm. There. You can begin now, Griselda. Thank you, dear. We will join hands in a circle of eternal light 
and harmony. Well, do it as though you meant it, woman, for heaven's sake. Hands, harmony. The man's not a flat fish. Oh, yes, Griselda. <laughs> Peace, perfect peace, peace, perfect peace, peace. It started, Mr. Jollet. You can always tell when it started. Are you there? Are you there, almighty oh, Manco Capac, emperor of the Inca, beloved of the sun? Her spirit guide, you know. I have had the pleasure. Speak, almighty oh, one. Is there anybody there? He's there. Speak. Speak. It is I, Manco Capac, Emperor of the Inca, beloved of the sun, God living, God incarnate, God of the infinite orb. This is where her breathing gets heavier. You'll see. Speak, oh Manco Capac. Emperor of your peoples, spirit guide to lesser mortals bound in bonds of common clay. Above the land of Cusco, the condor flies high in search of the lamb that has strayed. Oh dear. Our fields lie fallow, our storehouses empty. The living seed of promise has burnt itself to hash. I don't like the sound of that at all. Prepare then, my people, prepare ye. Climb, oh, climb thy temple mountain. Anoint with sacred unctions this our human sacrifice. See, oh, see where the living god of the orb, the chariot of the sun, spins gold upon this holy place. Raise high the sacred blade. The time of the living blood is upon us. The time is now. Stop daydreaming and pass Mr. Jollet the last of those chocolate digestives. Oh, yes. uh, Mr. Jollet? Uh, no, thank you, Miss Edie. Oh, oh well. <laughs> Piggy to the trough? I'll have it. Uh, Edie, while you're on your feet, you can put Capac's sacred pendant back in the casket where it belongs. There. Beautiful, isn't it, Mr. Jollet? Beautiful. Quite beautiful. Mm. I'd let you take a closer peek, but I don't think the old boy would go for that. Even letting Edie get her chocolatey little paws on it is stretching the point. But at least in the family, if you take my meaning. Of course. Oh, at least let me top you up. I beg your pardon? Uh, oh, no, no, thank you. It's most kind. Ah, oh, downhearted. 
<laughs> I don't blame you. Three Wednesdays in a row and still no contact with the dear departed, eh? Well, not yet, Griselda. Though the Emperor did seem to have rather a lot on his mind. Oh? Mm. I rely on Edie to keep me in the picture, you know. Huh? <laughs> have to, don't I, old thing? <laughs> Once his nibs takes over, out of my hands. Everything up to him, and when it's all over, the old memory slate wiped clean. Just like it had never happened. But you must have some idea. Griselda did try getting it on tape in the early days. Tried's the word. Oh? Not a sausage. First couple of times, just put it down to Sister Edie making a usual bosh of oh, it. Griselda! Well... Not exactly of a mechanical bent old thing, let's face it. She ever got around to fixing a fuse, she'd probably blow up Battersea Power uh, Station. So, what happened? Happened? <laughs> Nothing. Funny thing about it, though, all the early stuff, us getting settled, the odd bit of traffic noises from the avenue, Edie's ridiculous asides, mm, all uh... clear as a bell. But the minute Manco Capac starts doing his stuff, Nothing. Perhaps you were too far off the microphone. No further than any of the others. And from what Edie tells me, his nibs is not exactly the sotto voce type. Not exactly. Still, three weeks on the trot and still no contact with the dear departed. If he doesn't pull his finger out soon, you'll be asking for your lolly back. Oh, dear lady, it never entered my mind. Odd, though. Odd? Don't have many failures, do we, Edie, old thing? The first I can remember, Griselda. If your dear... Departed wife... Violet, Griselda. Violet, quite. Well, old Manco Capac can usually be relied upon to winkle them out. Not that there'd be much persuading needed, mind you. Huh? Well, put yourself in Violet's place. Like being told there's a long-distance phone call. Not even bothering to find out who's on the other end. I'd never quite thought of it in that light. I wonder what... Light, you had thought of it in, Mr. Jollit. I notice you've been admiring my sister's portrait, Mr. Jollit. What? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, it had rather caught my eye. Splendid, isn't it? Edie. Oh, but it is, Griselda, dear. Such an excellent likeness. Give or take 20 years. Oh, such fire. Such expression. Indeed. Cleopatra, don't you know? Really? Not the old Vic, Mr Jollit. Finsbury Park Empire. What they call in the business a bum week. Not the title role either. Though that's clearly the impression my sister wishes to give. Oh, but... Fatatatita! Fatatatita, fatatatita, fatatatita. <laughs> Trusted and rather boring handmaiden to the Queen, don't you know? She's the one that brings that awful rubber snake on at the end. The trickiest part was getting the name right. Fatatatita. <laughs> I still have nightmares. Painted by a fellow artiste, Mr Jollit. Better at painting than acting. But then everybody in the company seemed better at something than acting. Of course, I had realised your background was probably theatrical. <laughs> Only probably. Oh, my dear man, such understatement. That isn't to imply... <laughs> of all hands. Always was, always will be. Why, I eventually had the good sense to give it up. Anyway, 20 years on, water under the bridge. And sure, you must have better things to do than go up at pathetic shortcomings of an aspiring Sarah Bernhardt. <laughs>
How interesting. Mr. Jollett? How very interesting. Twenty years. You did say twenty years. Give or take. Why do you ask? In the painting, you're already wearing the sacred pendant. Am I? Uh, uh, oh, oh, yes. Yeah. So I am. Aren't I? Griselda's feeling of being caught out did not escape either Edie's or Mr. Jollett's notice. To begin with, Griselda half-choked on her chocolate digestive, then lapsed into a granite-like silence, which made the gentleman shift uneasily on the edge of his seat, drop a spoon, and finally invent a previous engagement, and so beat a grateful retreat. Griselda! What are you doing? What does it look as though I'm doing? I am having myself a gin. But you've just had tea. They can fight it out between them. Griselda. Matter of fact, I'm going to have three gins. But isn't it a little early From to start? From where I'm standing, it might already be a damn sight too late. <laughs> well, why the hell don't you join me? No, thank you. Suit yourself. Oh. Own damned fault. Pardon? Should have cottoned onto the blighter long before this. I must be losing my grip. Was a time I'd have got his number before he got his size tens over the front door, Matt. Are you referring to our Mr. Jollit? Jollit. Jollit. I wonder how long it took him to dream that one up. Or perhaps his super duper pulled it from a hat. Super duper? Superintendent, dear. What? Police. Fuzz. Oh. God knows why I didn't tumble. What did he say that ridiculous wife's name was again? Violet. <laughs> Violet Jollet. Well, have you ever heard anything more unlikely? Who in their right mind would ever want to be supernaturally reunited with someone called Violet Jollet? Mr Jollet. Hocus pocus, pudding and pie. Not that she ever existed, but like... Like somebody opening the second half in old-time music hall. Oh. Violet Jollit and her performing love doves. Osprey Feather at the tilt and her feathered friends dropping bird muck all over her velveteen and diamante ball gown. Not to mention half the stalls. I'm still not sure I follow you, Griselda. Well, God knows how much clearer I can make it. Phony, through and through. Ah, Mr. Jollit. And for God's sake, stop calling him that. And Mrs. Jollit, too. Well, how else was he going to get himself over the front door? Oh, but if our Mr... Well, the gentleman isn't what he pretends. I thought I'd put you in the picture. He's either one of the plainclothes brigade or, or a hack. A hack? A scribbler. A scribbler? From one of those dreadful Sunday rags, all turge and true confession. Well, he doesn't look like a newspaper man. You've never seen a newspaper man. No. Well, then, they're not all trilby hats and dirty trench coats, you know. No, I suppose they can't be. Still, had it coming. Had what coming? On the cards that one day I'd probably get myself splashed right across the front page of one of the Sunday dreadfuls. Real-life expose, life-after-death racket, the sinister truth. You know the kind of thing. <laughs> one of those dreadful photographs they always find to go with it. Out of focus, 
and slightly blurred around the edges. Griselda, dear, it, it, it wouldn't be true anyway. Would it? So what the devil do you think I've been prattling on about? The big phony. Always knew it, so now it's out of the bag. Good run for our money. Our money, Sister Edie, but over. I don't believe you. Then turn a blind eye again. Your option. Always been your prerogative in the past. Oh, true, <laughs> always true. Turn a blind eye to whatever you can't take. For you and Mumsy and dear dead Papa. The whole ridiculous charade of Arcadia Avenue. Over. Done with. Caput. Thank God. Your spiritual gift. Phony as hell. You made it all up. All of it. Not Manco Capac. <laughs> it had a ring about it. Not the kind of thing they'd be likely to find in the telephone directory. But I heard him, Griselda. Your spirit voice. Mm, a fair stab at one, even if I do say so myself. First tried it out when I was playing one of the three witches in the Scottish play. Closed after three nights. Theatre Royal Hanley. <laughs> Little did I know years later it might still have its uses. By the way... Did you notice how your Mr. Jollett turned somersaults when he heard of my theatrical associations? <laughs> it must always be a bit of a giveaway, I suppose. He was admiring the pendant, Griselda. Uh, ah, mm. Pendant of the Emperor Manco Capac, mm -hmm. ruler of the Incas, mm. from out of the land of Cusco. Spirit guide of lesser mortals, bound in the bond of common clay. Oh, oh dear. Sorry, old girl. Bosh. Oh, bosh. God knows where I even picked up that worthless bit of scrap iron. Probably with the rest of the junk in one of those sixpenny trays. I see. Edie? No. Just a bit of a headache. An early night. I'll take one of my pills... Well, perhaps even two. Oh, oh, what about your Biddy Buys cocoa? No, thank you, dear. I don't feel much like it tonight. No, not tonight. We have no way of knowing how long it was before Griselda followed Edie up the wooden hill. Gin had always been her tipple. It not only relaxed her, it gave her a, a warm feeling of righteous self-pity. And if she wasn't entitled to a large slice of that tonight, who the devil was? She could have been asleep for hours. She might just have closed her eyes. She lay fully clothed on top of the bed. She was perfectly aware of the distant town hall clock, and that damn ginger tom making its caterwauling next door. She was cold, 
reached down to pull the heavy eider down about her. But her hands lacked the strength, her intention, the purpose. She was pinioned, but not only by physical force, as though by hypnotism behind her eyes, dragging her backwards through time, place, to a scene she seemed to know, recognize, as in a dream. But a dream that was about to become her reality. Hearken then, O sacred children of the sun, let it be known through our ink and land that her denial of us, of our blessed sacred symbol, shall be avenged. Let the time be now. Raise high the sacred blade. The time of the living blood is upon us. The time is now. Now! upon the altar of our forefathers. Even now, even now, even now, even now. It was always Edie who coped with the ritual of early morning tea. She'd carefully avoid Griselda's pom-pommed carpet slippers, then set the cup gently down on her bedside table, draw her curtains to exactly the width she demanded, and then shake her gently but firmly by her shoulder until she got the first grunt of awakening and recognition. But no grunt came. It took Edie a long time before she finally would accept that Griselda was dead. But, uh, but it's not even Wednesday, Mr. Jollett. No, it isn't, is it? May I come in? I, I, I don't know. Are you alone? Of course. But only for a minute, then. It's a terrible mess. I'd offer you some tea, but... I'm not really up to it. Oh, I quite understand. Oh, do you? I only called to offer my sympathy. If there's anything... How did you find out about my sister's... Miss Griselda's passing? A small paragraph in last evening's paper. Oh. But only a small paragraph, you say? Oh, I'm not sure she'd have been too happy about that. Notices, even the obituary kind, were very important to her. Banner headlines, a photograph, a bit out of focus, blurred around the edges, was the way she put it. When I opened the door to you just now, I quite expected popping camera bulbs and a black Mariah. I'd almost hoped for it. 
I'm not sure I understand. Uh, there's really no need to keep up the charade, you know. No need at all. Now, Mr. Jollett. I see. Oh, she saw through you all right. Right from the very start. Edie, she said. Edie, dear, the man's an imposter. Jollett. <laughs> Such a ridiculous name. Isn't it, though? There never was a late Mrs. Jollett either, was there? No. <laughs> she roared her head off at that. Like somebody opening the second half in old-time music hall. <laughs> she roared her head off at that. <laughs> How else could I have got to see her? False pretenses. It was important to me. So why assume a false identity? Oh, no, the identity at least was my own. I, uh, I do have a card. Professor... Henry Jollett. The letters will mean nothing to you. The National Institute of History. Ancient history. South American, to be exact. Specialising in early Incan cultures. Hmm. It really means nothing to me, Mr Jollett. No. But, for what it's worth, I'd like you to explain. Oh, where to begin? Uh, just by chance, the wife of an associate put me onto your late sister's uh, activities. Oh. Forgive the scepticism. I, I'd never ventured into the spiritual world, but that didn't prevent me thinking I'd heard it all before. The substitution of an Incan emperor instead of your usual Indian chief gave it a certain twist. But I really had no intention of coming until I found myself here. Go on. It wasn't until she summoned the Emperor by name I, I started to take an interest. Ah, yes. Her great Manco Capac. Not exactly the kind of name you find in a telephone directory, is it? It's why she chose it, Mr Jollett. Made it up? If you like. Except that she didn't. Mm. Manco Capac, the predestined one. Founder of the Inca dynasty, bearer of the staff of gold, protector of the family and the hearth, founder of the city called... Cusco. Exactly. Well, she could have researched it, of course. Except that she didn't. No, she didn't. As I listened to her, there were many details of the emperor, his fort city at Cusco, that no amateur that, that, that even I, after a lifetime of study and only now beginning to alight on, a new world, long dead, but through her awakening again with a vigour and intensity I could never have aspired to. And yet, I doubted. Right up until... Until? The very last time in this room. Uh. We were having tea. And then... Out of the corner of my eye, I spotted it. Final proof of all I'd been so stupidly sceptical about. Her portrait? And about her neck, the royal seal pendant of the Incas. You'd seen it before? Only in the gloom, at a distance across the table. She'd refused to ever let me handle it. But suddenly, here in her portrait, 20, 30 years earlier... A very competent artist with all the time in the world to capture every detail. Will you permit me to see it? The pendant? 
if you wish it. She was wearing it when I found her. The clasp was broken, as though it had been torn from her neck. The autopsy was a necessary legal formality. In view of her age, excess weight, some kind of heart condition seemed the likeliest bet. In the antiseptic whiteness of their 20th century morgue, they made their preparations. A few know-it-all students jostled for a better view, sniggered at her large whiteness. There were no scars on her body, not even an appendectomy. But when her cadaver was eventually opened, they found no heart, only the severed aorta and the cavity where it had once lain. Miss Edie was offered a fortune for her pendant. She refused to sell it. It's now on permanent loan to Mr. Jollett's museum. She often drops in to see it, and there's usually tea and chocolate digestives in his office afterwards. And she's never taken down that brass nameplate on the gatepost. Consultations and ministrations strictly by appointment only. Whenever her finances get a bit tight, she consoles herself that she can always take up where Griselda left off. And why not? She does have connections in high places. That was Is There Anybody There? Starring Dillis Lay as Griselda Thorpe, Sylvia Coleridge, Edie, and Norman Bird, Mr. Jollett. The Price of Fear was presented by Vincent Price, written by William Ingram, and directed by John Dias. We'll be right back with the final hour of the special edition of It Came From Cleveland. Yeah, meat bags. Stand by for the tense climax of today's episode. Cleveland, Ohio. A land of strange rituals. The savage horrors of fearsome mutated beasts. Back from the dead. Kept alive by experimental science. Science runs amok when human beings tamper with unknown forces. Cut the power! Now at last, the real shocking story can be told. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. A nightmare combination of shock and terror, and you're invited. Foolish unto you. Something evil. And now, the most incredible act in the entire galaxy! Not recommended for impressionable children. Okay, we are back for the final hour of our Independence Day special on It Came From Cleveland. This show isn't as stupid as I once believed. It's quite thrilling and has many opportunities to explore the world of human meatbag entertainment and audio treasures throughout the ages. I concur, Robit Fellow. I also feel bad for reading Kenny's emails earlier so I want to make it up to him. I found a great adaptation of the Ray Bradbury story Mars Is Heaven which was collected as part of the Martian Chronicles. This was featured on the radio program Dimension X on July 7, 1950. 
I hope this makes up for our transgressions. Whatever. He can go to hell. But I'd like to hear the story. Let's blast off to Mars. Here we go. Wheaties presents Dimension X. Adventures in time and space. Transcribed in future tense. Dimension X. On stage tonight, Dimension X, another in the Wheaties big parade of exciting half-hour presentations. Say, tomorrow's Saturday, you know, and maybe you don't have to show up for work. A whole swell summer day for just what you want to do. So, start off with a big holiday bowl of Wheaties at breakfast, and just see how it sparks up the morning. Wheaties are whole wheat, you know, and I don't have to tell you what good, sturdy nourishment that is. So, if you've got fish to catch or golf to play or maybe a hike to take, just see how Wheaties can make it all a lot more fun. You know why? Why, lady, mister, it's just because you feel good when you've had your Wheaties. Those two-fisted little whole wheat flakes are loaded with vitamins and minerals. And so are you when you've had your Wheaties. Go on, try them. Just you see how Wheaties at 7 can help at 11. When the first space rocket lands on Mars, what will we find? Will we be welcomed with open arms, or will the Martians treat us as invaders? Only one thing is certain. Someday a giant metal ship will take off from Earth to travel through the black velocities, the silent gulfs of space, to descend at last into the darkness of the upper Martian atmospheres. And on that day, man will finally know the answers. The day we first land on Mars. Now hear this. Now hear this. Approaching critical deceleration. Fasten gravity suits. Stand by the land. Mr. Lustig, what do you make of the terrain? There seems to be a heavy ground, Miss Captain. We won't be able to use our infrared lights. And we'll have to come in on radar. Well, isn't that a little risky, sir, landing in the dark? I'd rather run the danger of a blind landing lieutenant than come in without the cover of darkness. Remember, we don't know what kind of reception is waiting for us down there. Airspeed 500. Altitude now 4,000. Bridge to engine room. Stand by for deceleration. Engine room. Hi. Fire forward tubes one and three. Hi. Skids down. Skids check. Altitude 500. Four. 350. Three. Upper point now. All right, let's set her down. Look out! Cut the power. Master's pipe battle stations. Aye, sir. All secured, sir. Well, we're on Mars. April 20th, 1987. 4.33, Greenwich time. Enter that in the log, Masters. Aye, sir. Well, gentlemen, it's less than two hours till dawn. As soon as it's light, we'll send out a landing party. Masters, get me an all-over hookup. All set, Captain. Now hear this. Now hear this. All right, men. The smoking lamp is lit. We're 17 men on an alien world. And it's up to us whether we ever get home again. Next few hours should tell the story. And I want instant obedience to all commands. 
I'll court-martial the first man who doesn't jump to when he's ordered. And one other thing. We may be on Mars, but this is still a United States naval vessel. Officers will conduct a personal and weapons inspection in one hour. That's all. Inspection, Captain. Now? Mr. Lustig, we've got an hour and a half to sweat out before we find out what's outside that airlock. I'd rather have a man worried about his stripes, about what's waiting outside on Mars. This landing party report to forward airlock. Captain Black, Lieutenant Hingston, Lieutenant Lustig, and Dr. Horst report immediately to forward airlock. It is now landing time, minus five. Sounds like they're paging us, Hingston. You ready, Dr. Horst? Yes. Ready as I will ever be. Come on. Let's report to the airlock. to go. Where's the captain? Who knows? What difference does it make? Just want to get it over with, that's all. Has anybody uh, got a cigarette? I think you're smoking too much, Lieutenant Lustig. Are you nervous? Lay off, will you, Horst? Wondering what's hidden outside underneath that ground mist? Very unusual planet, Mars. Why? It has an atmosphere. Wonderful thing, an atmosphere. Where you find one, you find life. You mean Martians? What do you think they'll look like? Who knows? Intelligent life can take many forms. You mean they may have green skins and eyes on stalks or something? Comic book conception is possible. Or they may have developed to a point that is far beyond us. Perhaps they have a science that can produce weapons far more dangerous than our atomic missiles. You think we may have to fight our way out? After all... We are invaders. Now hear this landing time minus two. Landing all time. All right, minus all right, two. we heard this. I know what I'd like to find outside that airlock. Good old Illinois. <laughs> you ever been there, Lustig? Only Chicago. Well, you ought to see my hometown. Green lawns, big white houses. Sounds like my hometown. My grandmother used to have one of those iron deers on the lawn. Every Halloween, we'd paint it another color. One time, we painted it black and white like a Holstein cow. <laughs> Where does your family live, Horst? I have no family. When I was a child, they were gassed to death in the Dachau concentration camp. That's tough. Oh, it has its advantages. I have no ties on Earth. Nothing to lose now. I imagine I'm the only one on board who is free to enjoy our present peculiar position. All right, Lustig. You can button it up now. Aye, sir. Well, gentlemen, in one minute we'll be the first men to set foot on Mars. Quite an honor, eh? As long as the medals are not awarded posthumously. Still uneasy, Dr. Horst? Captain Black, I've been uneasy ever since I can remember. On Earth... And on Mars. Well, 30 seconds. Give me the intercom phone, Lustig. Masters? Aye, sir. Battle stations to be manned till we return. If we're not back in two hours, I want no rescue party sent out. Blast off and save the ship, you understand? Aye, sir. All right, gentlemen. Five seconds. Four. Three. Two. One. Lustig, open the outer airlock. 
fresh air. Let's go. Hold it now. It's too dark to move fast. Quiet, isn't it? Not even a wind. You can't see anything through this ground. Mess. Quiet. We don't know what's out here. Come on. What the? Quiet, Captain. I, I could swear that sounded like a rooster. I don't hear it anymore. A very unlikely sound. A rooster crowing on Mars? Kingston. Aye, sir. Set that machine gun 25 yards to the flank. We'll stay here till the ground mist lifts. Aye, aye, sir. What do you make of the ground, Horst? Grass. Plain grass. You can see some large foliage there where the mists thin down. What the heck is that? Hold your fire, you fool! Some kind of wild animal. I hit it. I could see the tracers, but it's still standing. Come on, Hurst. Doctor. Doctor, where are you? Up ahead. Admiring the wild animal. Careful, Horst. Wait for us. Don't worry, Captain. Huh. It's an iron deer. A lawn ornament. That's impossible. It's hollow. Interesting, isn't it? A whitewashed Victorian iron deer. Sitting on a lawn in the middle of Mars. I don't understand. Look around. The mist's lifting. The captain. Look there. A house, a regular old-fashioned house. On Mars. Good Lord. I haven't seen carved scrolls and gingerbread like that in years. Look at that port swing. The geraniums. There. I told you it was a rooster, Captain. Give me the glasses, Lustig. I want to take a look through that front window. There's an upright piano. Some sheet music on it. Rustig, it's beautiful Ohio. Beautiful Ohio? That can't be. Look here, Horace. Do you think that civilizations of two planets could be identical? I don't know. That specific variety of geraniums is only 50 years old on Earth. Is it logical they should develop in Mars? How about that port swing and that, that piano and beautiful Ohio? No, it's impossible. Captain Black... This looks like the town I was born in. Well, it looks like my hometown, too. I've thought of something, sir. It's the only solution. Maybe we're not the first ship to reach Mars from Earth. That's the only answer. That's impossibleistic. There have been space travel that couldn't be secret. Do you have any idea what ships cost, what industrial power is needed? There's got to be some logical reason. Captain, I think perhaps we might find out. A light just went on in that house. Kingston, cover that door with the machine gun. Aye, aye, sir. Come on, horse. You ring that doorbell. There's got to be a scientific answer to all of this. There's something moving in there. Stand back, Horst. Give me a clear shot. Maybe a Martian. Can I help you? We... We, we were looking... Well, if you're selling anything, it's much too early. No, no. Wait. Wait a minute. What, uh... What town is this? What do you mean? Are you census takers? No, we're strangers here. We want to know how this town got here. Is this a game? No, no, it's not a game. We're from Earth. From where? From Earth. Do you mean out of the ground? Hey, uh, are you sure you're feeling well? Madam, we came in a flying ship across space. 
We're from the third planet. This is this is Mars. Now, do you understand? Mars. <laughs> you go away now, you hear? I'll call my husband from upstairs and he'll chase you now. But go on. this is Mars, isn't it? This is Green Lake, Wisconsin, in the United States of America. Bounded on the east by the Atlantic and on the west by the Pacific. Now, 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 go away. Goodbye. Of course, do you suppose it's really possible? I've got to find out more about this. For the last time, now, go away. Pardon me, madam. What year is this? Year? Well, 1928, of course. Oh, for goodness sake. You hear that, horse? And we know it's 1987. And we know it's Mars. Is it possible that we got fouled up, made some tremendous blunder, and circled around and landed back on Earth? In 1928? Well, maybe some switch in time or, or dimension. Could we have shifted somehow and gone backward in time? Horst, it won't hold water. It's not logical. We've checked every mile. We went past the moon and out into space. We're on Mars. Find out anything, Captain? No, we're going back to the ship till I figure out some logical explanation for all this. Lustig, out at point. Aye, sir. Hingston in the rear. Keep that gun at half log. Aye, sir. Horst, there's got to be some cold, logical solution. Captain. Captain. What? That house down the street. The white one with the green shutters. Lustig, what's the matter? I never thought. I never thought. Thank God. Thank God. Lustig. Lustig, come back here. He's running for the house. That crazy fool. After him, quick. Lustig, stop. Come down off of that port. Grandpa. Grandpa. Lustig, what Grandma. the devil do you think you're crying? Grandma and Grandpa, it is you. Lustig, what's going on here? Albert, why, it's been so many years. How you've grown, boy. Oh, it's so good to see you. Lieutenant Lustig. Oh, oh, Captain. Uh, Grandma, I want you to meet my friend. This is Captain Black. Captain, I want you to meet my grandfolks. Howdy. <laughs> Any friends of Albert's is friends of ours. How long have you been here, Grandma? Oh, good many years. Ever since we died. Ever since you what? Oh, yes, sir. They've been dead 30 years. What? You mean to tell me that Mars is heaven? Oh, nonsense, no. All we know is here we're alive again. And who are we to question God's infinite ways? I must have we're going back to the ship. But, Captain, I want to talk to my grandfather. Lieutenant Lustig, I don't like any part of this. You'll come back with us. I have to club you and carry you. Yeah, but, sir, there might... Heaven only knows what they've run up against back of the ship. Dimension X will continue in just a moment. Well, now let's come back to Earth for a moment. And what's more appropriate than Wheaties and baseball? You'll see what I mean as I introduce Ed Prentice, who has a special treat for you. Carry on, Mr. Prentice. Folks, I'd like to have you meet a good friend of mine and a prominent member of a fine little organization known as the Chicago White Sox, Mr. Lucius Benjamin Affleck. Ooh, Ed, don't say it like that. Whoever heard of a ball player named Lucius? What if I went around calling you Paul Edward Prentice? Let's just make it Ed and Luke, huh? <laughs> All right, Luke. Say, just how long have you been with the White Sox? Over 20 years, Ed. Golly, I played in darn near 2,500 games. Then it bat almost 9,000 times. Man, I'm from way back. Well, Luke, you don't look it. How do you keep up the pace, anyway? Well, Ed, I sleep good. I eat good. I eat mighty good. Feed is about four mornings a week. Those little old flakes put a lot of snap, even in an old-timer like me. Must be because they're 100% Whole wheat. 
I sure like Wheaties and milk and fruit. You know, Luke, that's exactly what I hear from a lot of ball players and plenty of other people, too. No wonder they call Wheaties the breakfast of champions. Well, thanks, Luke Appling and Ed Prentice. You know, folks, you may not be a champion ball player, but Wheaties can help you feel like one. So try them. Wheaties, that is. See how Wheaties at 7 can help at 11. Horst, look at that crowd around the ship. Looks like we're being welcomed with a celebration, Captain. Celebration? They've abandoned ship. Every port is open. No guards at you. You, masters. Hiya, Captain. Meet my old dad. Dad, that's Captain Black, and he's not a bad guy for an officer. Of all the... Kingston! Oh, what, sir? Bring that man back. Use force if you have to. Uh, I... Excuse me, sir. There's my Uncle George. Kingston! I'll be right back, Captain. Uncle George! Uncle George! What the devil Don't is going... Don't understand, sir. They've all found friends and relatives. They're all here. He's right, Captain. I've counted. The whole crew's out in the crowd. But I gave orders. Definite orders. You don't understand, Captain. I understand oh, you... mutiny. I don't care how many relatives show up. I'll have discipline John! on... Johnny! Johnny, you old son of a gun. Edward. Edward. It's you. It can't be. <laughs> of course it is. Johnny, you old son of a gun. Ed. Edward. Dr. Horst. This is my, my brother, Edward. How do you do? Hello. It's... It's wonderful to see you, Edward. Look, I, 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 I've got to get back to my hey, ship. Hey, I almost forgot. Mom's waiting at home. Mom? And Dad, too. Mom? Dad are alive? Excuse me, Horst. Then you're real, then. <laughs> Don't I feel real? How's that, huh? <laughs> Ed. Ed. Hey, we've, we've got lunch for you, Johnny. Mom's making corn fritters. Corn? Dr. Horst, haven't you found anybody? Uh, no, Captain. I have nobody. Then you come on home with me, right, Ed? Sure, you bet. Horst, you wouldn't believe it, but it's been 35 years since I had Mom's corn fritters. By George. 35 years. <laughs> And there's plenty more in the kitchen, so don't hold back, Johnny. You too, Dr. Horst. Well, Johnny, you're still in the Navy, huh? That's right, Dad. I'm in command of the ship. We're an old Navy family, Dr. Horst. All three of our boys in the service. Ed was the best pilot in the Pacific. What didn't happen, Ed? Oh, what's the difference? I'm here now. Oh, you know, it's almost perfect. All we're missing is your brother, Will. Then the whole family could be together. Well, it won't be long, Mom. Will's in charge of the XR-54. That's the next rocket coming out to Mars. Well, little Will. <laughs> when does he leave, Johnny? Takeoff scheduled for September, but it depends on what we report. <laughs> There's no question about that now, eh? Christmas together again. That'll be something, huh? Yes, sir. Well, this calls for celebration. How about a little of the old dandelion wine, eh, Johnny? Now, Father, don't you go giving Johnny too much wine. Oh, he's a big boy now, Mother. Oh, well, sir, isn't everything just fine? Just fine. Gleaming on the banks of the Wabash, a 
far away. Play another song. Well, Dr. Horace, what do you think of my little family, hmm? Very nice. You know, I can't understand why you didn't find any folks here, Dr. Horace. It's just a shame everybody else is so happy. I never remembered my family, Mrs. Black. All I know is they were gassed at Dachau during the Second World War. When I was liberated, I was in a delirium three months. I cannot remember anything before then. The psychiatric phenomenon. That's terrible. Isn't there anything anybody can do? I don't want to remember. Oh. I haven't had a pleasant life. I prefer to be free of emotional entanglements. They interfere with a scientific approach. I'm sorry, Dr. Horst. Oh, I'll get it. Hey, that's our ring, along in three shorts. Hello? I remember that. Well, maybe we'd better call it a night. You must be getting tired, Johnny. I'd better be going back to the ship. Oh, nonsense. You stay the night. We insist. Oh, I just couldn't rest thinking of you all alone on that ship. Oh, I'd be all right. Well, good night. Oh, wait a minute, Dr. Horst. That phone message was for you. Me? Yeah, that's right. A message from Anna. Anna? I don't remember any Anna. She asked if you were better. Well, perhaps she's someone you knew at Dachau. She said she's coming over here first thing in the morning. So you'll have to stay over. Yes, Well, that but... settles it then. You stay here, Horst. You can bunk with me in my old room. Oh, but Johnny, we thought you'd like to be with Edward. So you could talk the way you used to. Well, we can't put Dr. Horst on the daybed. I think we'd better share the room tonight. There'll be plenty of time for talking, Ed. I guess so. Well, I suppose I'd better drop back to the ship. You know, Ed, security check. Well, why do you have to do that here? Well, I don't know. There's no good reason, I guess. <laughs> well, I suppose we skip it tonight. Oh, sure. sure. Well, good night, everybody. Oh, it's good to have you home, Johnny. It's good to be home, Mom. Captain Black, are you asleep? No, no. I've just been thinking about what we were expecting. <laughs> Green-skinned Martians with eyes on stalks. All the time there was only Mom and Dad and Edward waiting. Ah, it's funny what tricks your imagination can play on you. Yeah, I guess Mars is heaven, Horst. Hmm. I've been thinking about Martians, too. Yeah. <sighs> Captain... Just suppose, suppose there were Martians, and they saw us land. Suppose they thought of us as invaders. What would be the best weapon they could use against our atom bombs? I don't see what you're getting at. They would want to disarm us first, hmm. to wipe out all suspicion, to make us feel at home. Hmm. But suppose this house isn't real. Suppose the people are just images. Stolen from our own memories by Martians. Created for us by telepathy, hypnotism. <laughs> that's the craziest theory I ever heard. Maybe that's why there was no one for me. Because in all my life, there is no happy memory, no real love person. How about that phone call from Anna? Yes, Anna. 
I don't remember who she was, but I do now. I just remembered. When I was freed from Dachau, sick, delirious, I raved about a wonderful, kind nurse named Anna that took care so of me. there you are. It's logical. She's coming to see you tomorrow. But there was no Anna. I'd be nursed by a man. What? Anna was only a dream. And there's only one way they could have learned about her. By reading my subconscious mind. But that's impossible, Horace. Why? The whole crew was thinking of home. Suppose the Martians read our minds. Yes, but if, if there are Martians... If there are, they have us separated. Each man in a different house. Sleeping. Trusting. No one at the guns. I left my pistol downstairs. Do you, do you think there's something to this horse? It's a... Who would suspect his own mother? His grandparents? How easy. Just a knife in the heart of each sleeping man. It's impossible, Horseman. We've, we've got to get back to the ship. Listen. The crickets have stopped. Come on. We don't know when they change back to whatever they really are. Where are you going, John? Ed, well, we, we wanted to drink a water... That's all, Ed. You're not thirsty, John. You don't want to drink. You don't want Look to out! drink. His face, it's changing. And his hands, he's a Martian. Run, horse. Run. Get away, John. You can't get away. This way, horse. Horse, where are you? Can you hear me, Earth? This is Captain John Black, the XR-53, calling from Mars. I've locked myself in the ship, but they've crippled it. I, I can't take off or fire the guns, and they're coming for me now. The Martians. I'm all alone here. All the rest are dead. Hingston, Lustig, Dr. Horse. Poor Horse, he didn't even reach the door. Listen, listen, they're trying to break through the hull now. Edward and Mom and Dad and all the folks. But they're changing now. Melting and changing back into their Martians. Can you understand me? Martians, not men. They made us think that Mars was heaven and we fell into the trap. Can you hear me, Earth? You've got to stop the next rocket. Tell, tell my brother Will. Tell my brother Will not to come. They'll trap him too. They'll kill them all. Hello. Hello. Can you hear me, Earth? This is John Black on Mars. Hello, Earth. This is John Black on Mars. Tonight, Dimension X has presented and transcribed the Ray Bradbury story, Mars is Heaven, adapted for radio by Ernest Canoy. Featured players were Wendell Holmes as Captain Black and Peter Capel as Dr. Horst. Your narrator, Norman Rose. Music by Albert Berman, engineer Bill Chambers. Dimension X is produced by Van Woodward and directed by Edward King. Robert Warren speaking. In a moment, we'll tell you about next week's show. And now, here is your Wheaties man, Frank Martin. Folks, tonight we have a special guest for you. Here he is, Joel McRae. Hello, Frank Martin. I kind of expected to see a package of Wheaties sticking out of your pocket. What? Did I forget them? You must like Wheaties, <laughs> Frank. Sure, don't you? You bet. I'm joining the big parade of Wheaties programs, you know, with Tales of the Texas Rangers come Saturday night. That promises to be real entertainment, Joel. I understand these are true stories of the Texas Rangers. Absolutely. Each story is straight from the Texas Ranger files. Well, we're mighty proud to have you join us, Joel, with this new program. 
We'll all be listening on the same NBC station Saturday night for Joel McRae in Tales of the Texas Rangers. Okay, Mr. McRae? Okay, partner. Good night. Good night, Joel. And friends, be sure to listen Saturday, that's tomorrow night, to Joel McRae and his new program, Tales of the Texas Rangers. And get your Wheaties, everybody. And this is the Wheaties man, Frank Martin, inviting you again to listen tomorrow night to Joel McRae in Tales of the Texas Rangers on the Wheaties Big Parade. See you then. Next week, the story of the strangest case ever recorded in the files of the Bureau of Missing Persons. The case of The Man in the Moon. You'll hear the whole story next week when we venture once more into the unknown world of... Dimension X. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. Wow, that was pretty scary. But I suppose those meatbags shouldn't be trying to colonize everything in sight. I feel the Martians were justified in their actions. Me too. Well, I guess we have time for one more thing on the show. Isn't this where they talk about the Twilight Zone? Yup, it sure is. But I haven't watched any of those and I don't know what to say about them. How about we play something similar from a speculative fiction radio show from the past? Okie donkey. What you got? I have an episode from the Hall of Fantasy from 1953 featuring an adaptation of the Edgar Allan Poe classic The Cask of Amontillado. Excellent. Let's get scary. And now... The Hall... Of fantasy. Welcome to the Hall of Fantasy. Welcome to the series of radio dramas dedicated to the supernatural, the unusual, and the unknown. Come with me, my friends. We shall descend to the world of the unknown and forbidden, down to the depths where the veil of time is lifted, and the supernatural reigns as king. Come with me and listen to the tale of The Cat of Amontillado. <laughs> Fools and cowards, Montreza. Fools and cowards. What I say about your ancestors is true, Montreza. Every last word of it. <laughs> that fat, dull-witted fool, Fortunato. That he should dare to insult the names of my ancestors. For that I swear, Fortunato shall die. In just a moment, the Hall of Fantasy will present The Cask of Amontillado. And now for our story. Adapted for radio by Richard Thorne, entitled The Cask of Amontillado. As my story begins, it was carnival time in Venice, a time of feasting and merrymaking. 
Fortunately, when I had been celebrating with all the rest, perhaps we'd indulge our taste for wine too greatly that day. But that was when it began. The day was almost spent, and we were standing in front of my house watching the crowd. Ah, yes, my friend. The carnival has been a great success. Through Fortunato. Did you know that it was one of my ancestors who made the plans for the carnival over four generations ago? What? Oh, come now, Montresor. You're not serious. <laughs> it's not your Fortunato. It's in the records of the family for any who wish to see. Ah, I cannot believe you. He was one of the foremost swordsmen of his age. In fact, all the male members of the family were renowned for their ability with a foil. <laughs> even you, Montresor? <laughs> yes, my friend, even Montresor. <laughs> with those spindly legs, you, a swordsman? <laughs> Take care, Fortunato. What? You dare threaten me. How do you like it, Montresor? How do you like the point of my rapier at your throat? Fortunato. Please, <laughs> you fancy yourself a great swordsman. <laughs> it's so funny, Montresor. You look at you all white in the face. So frightened. <laughs> so brave. <laughs> I do not know about your ancestors, Montresor. But you certainly have made this carnival the funniest in a long time. <laughs> a great swordsman. <laughs> I bid you a brave farewell, Montresor. <laughs> Gone, the echoes of his spat, laughing his face remained in my brain. The great swordsman. I went into the house and thought to see no more of him that night. Little by little, the remaining hours of the carnival wasted away until finally I heard the great bell striking midnight, marking the end of the celebration. I sat in the library reading, but the printed words refused to be silent and rearranged themselves into a likeness of Fortunato's face. <laughs> My mind was playing tricks on me. That I knew. But of a sudden, a shadow fell across the pages. Hey, Montresor. Fortunato, how did you get in? <laughs> Don't be alarmed, my good Montresor. One of your servants was so kind as to allow me entrance. What do you want? Oh, come now, Montresor. You wouldn't refuse a good friend the hospitality of your house, would you? I forgot. It's past midnight. The wine shops are closed. <laughs> yes, quite true, Montresor. So I came to you. May I offer you some wine? Well, I hope you would. Yes, I imagine you did. Here, Fortunato. Yeah, many thanks, Montresor. <laughs> There's nothing like fine wine. That's why I like you so much, Montresor. Why? Well, no matter what you are, your wine cellar is filled with the finest of wines. Thank you for your compliment, Fortunato. <laughs> but uh, there's one wine you do not have. That is? Amontillado. Someday I hope that you will procure some Amontillado. Amontillado is the rarest wine in all of Italy, Fortunato. But for your friend, Fortunato, you might perhaps get some? We shall see, my friend. Now you were about to leave. <laughs> yes, Montresor, I shall leave. Uh, but before I do, pour me another glass of wine. <laughs> I drink to the great uh, swordsman in your family. <laughs> you didn't lie to me about your family, Montresor. I know them for what they are. And that was? Fools and cowards, Montresor, all of them. What you say, my ancestors should be well-tempered with thought, Fortunato. Oh, no, it was, Montresor, it was. Fortunato, if you... No matter. You're drunk. You're not responsible for what you say. Drunk? <laughs> I never drink enough to muddle my brain, Montresor. I mean what I say. Just the same. I'll excuse you this time. Why, excuse me? What I have said is the truth. I think perhaps you'd better leave. <laughs> yes, my friend, I shall leave. <laughs> but before I do, however, may I ask if you're going to the party tomorrow night? Yes, I am. Why? Oh, merely asking. Of course, Rosita will be there. 
Yes, I know. <laughs> Lovely girl, Rosita. Yes, I know. <sighs> I shall be going. Do oh, I shall accompany you to the door. No need, my friend. I'm steady enough to make it myself. <laughs> Especially for radio by Richard Thorne, entitled The Cask of Amontillado. I determined then to even the score, to revenge the desecration of my name, of my family honor, and immediately into my brain flooded a host of ideas to destroy him. What were his weak points? How could I catch him at a disadvantage? If only I could lure him down into the catacombs beneath my house. Few people knew of the vast subterranean caverns that lay beneath the house. But how to get them there? Let me see. Something he said might give me a clue. Something he said. <laughs> Fools and cowards, Montreza. Fools and cowards. No, no, not that. Something else. And what I said about your ancestors still holds true, Montreza. Montreza, don't forget the Amontillado. The Amontillado. The Amontillado. Don't forget the Amontillado. That was it. The Montillado. The cask of a Montillado. Wine drinker, was he? A connoisseur of fine wines, eh? That was it. That was the way to accomplish my revenge. A Montillado, the rarest wine in all of Italy. Fortunato would die for a glass of a Montillado. Yes. Fortunato would die for a glass of Amontillado. Accordingly, a few days later, I sent him a message saying, 
I would like to meet him at his favorite place of entertainment with wine merchants in, of course. I waited anxiously for his answer. Yes? A message for you, Signor Montresor. From whom? Signor Fortunato bade me give it to you. Yeah, thank you. Good. Thank you for your tidings, lad. Here's something for your trouble. Oh, thank you, Signor Montresor. Fortunato had agreed to meet me on the morrow. My nerves were tense and the time moved so slowly. I sat by the hourglass the entire night and part of the next day watching the grains of sand mark off the time. Finally, when I knew I could bear to wait no longer, the time arrived. Ah, Senor Montresor. Oh, good day, Peroni. I was just leaving. Senor Fortunato was over by the window. Confidentially, Montresor, I'm glad you're here. When he's had too much to drink, he... He's a destructive man. Well, I should take care of him, Peroni. Yeah, thank you, Senor Montresor. Uh, while I'm gone, and if you want something, just call my wife. Uh, she's in the rear. Thank you, Peroni. Good day, Senor Montresor. So you come in, Montresor. Come and join me. I'm quite glad you could meet me today, Fortunato. I hope I didn't inconvenience you by asking you to meet me here. <laughs> Absolutely not, Montresor. If you had, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> what are you drinking? Sherry. Will you have a glass? Yes, you can pour me a glass of sherry. Well, I assure you, my friend, it's the very best. Uh, there you are. <laughs> uh, excuse me, Montresa. I have a cold. You should take better care of yourself, Fortunato. Yeah, it will pass. Well, then, tell me, what did you wish to see me about? Perhaps I'd better not mention it. Oh, come, come, Montresa. Don't tell me you wanted to see me for nothing. Well, I wanted your advice on something. Oh, what? You see, I've procured a cask of what is supposed to be... Amontillado. Amontillado? Where? When? From whom? That I cannot tell you, but you see, I have my doubts about it. A cask of Amontillado? A whole cask? It sounds impossible. I agree with you, my friend. It does sound impossible. Perhaps I was foolish to pay the full Amontillado price without consulting you in the matter. But you were not to be found, and I was fearful of losing a bargain. No, I can't get over it. Amontillado. I have my doubts for you. Amontillado. And I must satisfy you. Amontillado. I had contended with Casey. If anyone should know, it should be he. He will tell you. Oh, is a fool. But he cannot tell him Montreal from, from the common sherry. And yet some people say his taste is a match for your own. They lie. Well, that is a matter of opinion. Well, they lie, I tell you. <laughs> Lucchese is an apostate. I think I'd better be going. I'm going with you. My friend, no. I will not impose upon your good nature. I... You will not go to Lucchese. Montresa, are you insulting me? I know, Fortunato. I merely thought... I care not for what you think. <laughs> I will go with you. It is really your cold that I worry about, Fortunato. It is damp in the cellars. Very damp and very cold. Ah, it matters not to me. This cold is a mere nothing. But Amontillado... Yeah, I must know if you've been swindled. Oh, and uh, Montresa. Yes? Forget about Lucchese. He knows nothing about fine wines. As you say, my friend. Shall we... When we reached the house, there were no attendants present. I made sure that we'd be entirely alone. Before we go downstairs, my friend, let us fortify ourselves against the cold and dampness with some wine. The catacombs would undoubtedly make your cold much worse. Yeah, a capital idea, Montresor. A little sherry, if you please. 
Yeah, no, not too much. <laughs> but not too little, either. I have no fears, Fortunato, my friend. It'll be just yeah, right. Yes, yeah. Let me have it. <laughs> Makes me feel better. Much better. Have another glass, Fortunato. Yeah, no, 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 no. Please, please. Well, on second thought, Montresor, yes, I will have another glass. I thought so. Here you are, Fortunato. Yeah, many thanks, Montresor. Drink heartily. Who knows, you may not be alive tomorrow to enjoy it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, Montresor, how right you are. <laughs> what a sense of humor you have. <laughs> but I intend to be alive tomorrow. <laughs> but then, who can tell? <laughs> yes, who can tell? Back now to our story, adapted especially for radio by Richard Thorne, entitled The Cask of Amontillado. We finished the wine and sat talking for a few minutes. Then, seeing his eagerness was at its height, I led him to the archway that led down into the vaults. We passed down a long and winding stairway. At length, we came to the foot of the descent and stood together on the damp ground of the catacombs of the Montresors. Here we are, Fortunato, in the catacombs of the Montresors. Yes, but the castle of Montreal, where is it? It is farther on, Fortunato. Uh, see, the walls of this place are so dirty. I hate to be caught down here. How long have you had that cough? Uh, oh, it's nothing. Let us proceed. No, we'll go back. Your health is precious. You'll be ill and I'll be responsible. We might even become lost. Besides, there's always Lucasia. Enough! The cough is nothing. I shall not die of a cough. True. True, Fortunato. You will not die of a cough. I had no intention of alarming you unnecessarily, Fortunato, but you should use the proper caution. And there's a bottle of wine on the rack here. Let us have some. It'll make you forget the dismalness of this place. <laughs> yes, by all means. It's so damp and cold down here. Sorry, I have no glass to offer you. No, don't stand up. Ceremony, Montresor. <laughs> yeah, let me have the bottle. Here. This is the family crypt, is it not? Yes, this is the crypt of the Montresors, an ancient and honorable family. Yeah, well then, I drink to the buried that repose around us. And I... I drink to your long life. <laughs> yes, that's a good toast. In my long life. You know what, Tracer? These vaults are extensive. What would happen if we were to be lost down here? I will not be lost, Fortunato. Still, uh, perhaps we should go back. And leave the Amontillado? Well, we could return another time. You're afraid I can always get the case. No, 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 no. Let us proceed to the Amontillado. After all, we shall only be here for a little while. If you insist, Fortunato... If you insist. <laughs> Coughing grew worse, but I said nothing. I believe he was not quite so enthusiastic about finding the Amontillado. We passed through a range of low arches, descended, passed on, and descending again, arrived at a deep crest. Hey, Montresa. Where is the Amontillado? The Amontillado? Oh, yes, in the crypt, Fortunato. I, I can't... Uh, where? In that low crypt ahead of you. Why, yes. Just tall enough for a man of my size. Yes, isn't it? But, uh, I do not see the cask of Amontillado. Oh, but you will, Fortunato. You will. You wouldn't want to turn back now, would you? A man of your courage. I will not have it said that Fortunato is a coward. Now then, 
Just where is he, Montreal? Montreal? Lift your torch a little higher, Fortunato. You'll see it. Where? Just inside this niche, Fortunato. Just inside. Why did you... Why did I hide it here? You forget a Montreal is the rarest wine in all of Italy, Fortunato. <laughs> yes. You're wise, Montreal. Now, Fortunato, herein lies the Montreal. As for Duquesne... He's a cool. Montreal. A whole cast of a Montreal. Yes, go in. Get to be a Montreal, Fortunato. <laughs> Montreal. This rock is in the way. Put your hands up high and push, Fortunato. No, higher. You should have seen the look of terror on his round face. He could barely move. The crypt was just the right size for him. Just the right size for him to die in. Then I began to work. I began walling up the entrance to the niche in which Fortunato was chained. Montresor, what are you doing? Even a dolt can understand what I'm doing, Fortunato. Even a dolt such as Montresor. Please, Montresor, don't wall me up in here. I, I, I didn't mean the things I said. finished with the first tier of masonry when I discovered that the effect of the wine had worn off Fortunato. He began shaking his chains in an effort to throw them off. I don't get loose on like that. I'll throw these chains off. Do you know good to shake those chains and strong, Fortunato? I made sure of that. In my face. Look, I- I'll give you anything you want. Rosita, money a thousand lira. over his shoulder, watching me as I piled brick upon brick. With each stone I put into position, his eyes took on a look of increasing terror and torture. He made little sounds in his throat. I continued my work. I had finished laying the seventh tier of rocks before I paused to rest. The wall was almost upon a level with my chest. Tell me, someone! Tell me! What is this man? Someone will know that you took me. So, but they'll find me even if I'm dead. And you'll be punished. Few people know of these catacombs, Fortunato. And those who do are my friends. <laughs> yes. This is a very good joke indeed, Montrezor. Who would have thought that you had such a sense of humor? But uh, don't you think your little joke has gone far enough? <laughs> we will have many laugh over it as we drink our wine, eh? I will have many a laugh over it, Fortunato. I don't think you'll be able to laugh. Montresa. Montresa, you can't be in earnest. So much in earnest that you'll die for it, Fortunato. Montresa. 
events portrayed in these programs are fictional, and any similarity to actual events or persons living or dead is purely coincidental. Well, looky there. We actually did it. We finished the whole show for Kenny, Joe, Michelle, and Miles so they could enjoy their holiday weekend. I have me a new sense of pride. Me too, robot fellow. We are capable of so much more than just answering silly questions. Maybe we should branch out and start a new podcast of our own. Yes, we will show the world that Kenny Pick isn't the only one who can make an awesome show with his friends. I have a better idea. Let's just say we are going to make our own podcast, puff up our chests and act all independent but never actually do it because we have no real dedication to the craft. You're right. We better just leave it to the professionals like Miles, Michelle, Joe and Kenny. What are we going to call a fake podcast? Well I started writing down several stupid names that we will never use and made some doodles on me notepad. Ah whatever. We have to stop the show now. The music is about to. This concludes our broadcast day.